you want to just scoot up to here, that's fine. Good morning. Maybe a little bit out. Okay, hopefully that'll take care of it. and let people who may be a few minutes late to isn't it? Oh, if it keeps doing that, we'll get them to come in and take a look. So good morning. It's really lovely to be here with you, and we'll start with a short sitting of about 15 minutes or so, and um, really the somebody to come and help with the audio, it keeps going in and out, um, and I may be doing this while you're sitting, so it'll be a good chance for you to practice non-distraction. <laughs> but the most basic instruction for this practice is to breathe, which you're already doing, and to know that you're breathing. And in particular in this area, which I'll get into a little bit later. But just for our first sitting, uh, it's an easy way to make the practice very simple, And this is a serenity practice, so it's important to remember this isn't just a concept. And um, it's important to really balance both sides of the practice. Okay. Is this on? Okay, so go ahead and close your eyes and find a comfortable posture, preferably with both feet or knees flat on the floor, really feeling your ground. Feel the breath coming in and out of your body. And just breathe and know that you're breathing. Really let yourself settle into that natural peace and serenity that's always there, available. And we'll sit for about 10 to 12 minutes and I'll ring the bell at the end.
in a minute. Yeah. It, well, it was kind of coming in and out, so maybe you could just stay for a few minutes uh, and make sure. Good morning, everyone. My name is Romy, and I'm an event coordinator here at Spirit Rock. I always like to know how many people have never been to Spirit Rock before. Wow. Awesome. Okay, so these announcements are for you. This will help you <laughs> navigate the day. Those of you that have heard these announcements dozens of times, forgive me. First of all, uh, I'd like to thank our volunteers. There's four of them in the room today. We all have our name tags on. And if you have any questions, you're welcome to ask the volunteers. We'd be happy to help you. And um, if you'd like to volunteer in the future, you can ask them about volunteering as well. It's a lovely way to be part of the Sangha. Um, Okay, here's a couple of other things. You've noticed we do allow liquids in this room. We're so happy when you keep everything covered. And if there's a spill, let one of the volunteers know and we'll uh, wipe it up right away. We have assisted hearing devices. And I'm going to help someone with an... Ah, okay, I'm going to help you as soon as I'm done. Um, Are you okay for now? Okay, good. Um, We have an assisted hearing device, and I can help you with that. They're in the back of the room. They work great. Um, We just found a tick in the building this morning. So when you go for lunch, and I'll mention lunch in a moment, when you come back into the room, would you please look for ticks? They're just We have pictures of them downstairs, and let's leave the ticks outside. Now let's talk about lunchtime. Um, You're welcome to eat outside, and many people go across the way to the meadow, which is so lovely because there's picnic tables there, but that's where the ticks are. (laughs) So um, you're welcome to go there and just look at your pants legs on the way in. You should be fine. You can eat outside here, um, the front of this building as well. If you're thinking to yourself, oops, I forgot my lunch, we have Woodacre Deli across Sir Francis Drake. Be happy to give you directions there. Um, You are welcome also to take a little walk for lunch. You can walk up the hill here, especially you new people. We have a gratitude hut. It's just right up the road on your left. You can't miss it. There's a sign. You're welcome to go in there and see pictures of our teachers when they were monastics and had shaved heads and were riding elephants. Those pictures are in the Gratitude Hut. You can walk a little further, but you'll see a wood gate that says residential retreatants only. I'm going to ask you not to go past that gate. Those people are silent, and they've been silent for several days. They're up there for 10 days, and it's serious business. So we're going to be down here preparing ourselves for a silent retreat one day. Um, This afternoon, in your home email, you'll get a survey regarding today. If you have time in the next several days to fill it out, we do look at all of your suggestions and um, take them under advisement. So please fill out the survey if you have the time. There's an email list outside for Tina. There's a book outside that Tina and Stephen wrote. We have more in the bookstore. The bookstore is downstairs. If you need water, we have water bottle fillers downstairs. What else? There's another event downstairs. So we ring the bell. That's Bab's job as volunteer when it's time to come in from walking meditation and lunch and breaks. 
but there's also another event downstairs, so you may hear their bells as well. We have a clock in the back of the room for you, and also that reminds me, it's time to turn off our cell phones. Thank you. So that's a lovely thing to do so they don't go off during our meditation. Okay. That was a lot. For you new people, if you have any questions or have forgotten anything that I've said, you can please see me downstairs. Now I'd like to introduce Tina Rathmussen, who is a pleasure to work with. Concentration meditation. I'm very envious you're all here today. It's a lovely practice. And I'm very envious that you get to be in the room today. Um, Tina started meditating when she was 13, which was like... 15 years ago or so? Something like that. Lovely. And you also <laughs> ordained as a nun. Yes. Was that in Burma? No, it was with Park Saidao at the first retreat he did in the U.S. Oh, lovely. So I don't know if you're going to talk about that. but I I'm, will a little oh, bit. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm particularly interested. <laughs> and uh, as I mentioned, Tina's book with Stephen is downstairs. And I think that's enough for now. So thank you all. Have a really beautiful day. And uh, enjoy yourselves. Thank you. Thank you, Romy, and thanks, many thanks to Spirit Rock. Yeah. Our pleasure. Let me get you this. So today is supposed to be um, sold out, so all the chairs may end up being full. Um, do we know that the recording is going? It is. Okay, good. So welcome, everyone. It's lovely to be here with you. Uh, on the topic of concentration, meditation, and purification of mind. And um, I want to say that Stephen wanted me to convey his regrets that he's not here for those of you who were expecting him. He's in Michigan attending to a family matter, so he sends his apologies. So today's agenda... We'll be doing some, I'll be doing some teaching, and then we'll have time for questions, and then we'll do sitting, and then we'll have breaks, and teaching, and questions, and sitting, and breaks, and it kind of goes like that throughout the day. So there will be a break somewhere around mid-morning, and if you want to do any walking, you could do a small amount. We don't have formal walking meditation in uh, today's agenda, because this practice doesn't emphasize it in the same way that Vipassana does. And I'll talk about that later. Um, But we will have a break in the morning. We'll have an hour for lunch somewhere around noon. And then we'll have a break in the afternoon and end by 4.30. So that's our agenda for today. And um, just to give you a little bit um, more background than what you get on the Spirit Rock 50-word maximum website... um, As Romy said, I started meditating at the age of 13, which was really, I had no idea what a blessing that was at the time. I happened to have the good fortune to go into a uh, session, I guess I would say, at at the Methodist church that my family attended outside of Chicago when I was a teenager. And my story now, I went in there, and it was a family day, so my parents were elsewhere. I just went in there and sat down. I mean, I can still picture it in my mind. It's really um, was an important moment in my life that I didn't really realize. And uh, my story is that the person teaching it went off to Asia somewhere and came back and brought back what he, he learned. And 
Um, I've been benefiting from that ever since. So, uh, And then in my 20s, I got a lot more deeply interested in meditation. I had been doing meditation, just what I learned on that day when I was 13 for years, and had... Uh, you know, done a few events, day-longs like this and other things, but I started getting really deeply interested in the spiritual path and in um, spiritual unfoldment and awakening. And I just started devouring books from all different traditions and um, eventually went to a Vipassana retreat taught by Jack Cornfield, who, of course, founded Spirit Rock, and I don't know if Spirit Rock was even founded yet at that time, but I started really being attracted to retreats. And then I started doing longer retreats and 10-day retreats and month-long retreats and did those almost every year for many years. Also was interested in Tibetan Buddhism, um, the yogic tradition, and um, Qigong. And uh, I decided to do a year-long solo retreat when I was in my 30s, late 30s, and did that at the age of 39, and um, really was a profound, life-changing year for me. And many things happened, which I won't talk about today, but one of, one of the things that occurred on that retreat was uh, I did a month-long here at Spirit Rock at the beginning of the year. And so most of the year I was practicing solo, but started off with that month. And at that time, they were just starting to introduce concentration practice. So there were like small groups of us doing it kind of secretly in this sea of Vipassana practitioners. Um, and, uh, and my teacher really suggested that I study at some point with Pawak Sayadaw, who was even today considered to be the one of the really senior living masters of meditation of all types, not just concentration, um, Burmese, and his picture is out on the table if you want to see his glowing, radiant face at the age of 83. Um, and so I undertook to, ta- uh, to um, attend that retreat, and that's where Stephen and I met, was because of that retreat. And on that retreat, I ended up completing the entire Samatha path that he teaches, which had never been done by a layperson, a Western layperson before, so it kind of became a big deal, which, you know, I was just attending a retreat. I didn't know it was a big deal, and he has been, like, telling people all over the world that what was happening. So by the time Stephen and I finished, people knew. There was no you know, keeping it quiet or anything. And people started coming to us and asking us to write about what we had experienced so that other people might be able to progress on the path as well because it hadn't really been that accessible. And so that's when we wrote um, our book, which we self-published, and then Shambhala later published it. So there are some copies of this downstairs if you're interested. It's also available on Kindle or other e-readers. And um, it's really a, a, an accessible um, path through this, the Samatha practice that we learned from Pawak Sayadaw. And here I am today. And then we started teaching about um, 12 years ago, really in the middle of normal lives, just like yours with jobs and everything else, and people wanted us to start teaching so we somehow squeezed that in, and um, it's just grown and grown, and now have worked with people in, I think, 50 countries around the world, and teach in North America and Europe, mostly. 
and work with people on Skype all over the world. So uh, we do have an email sign-up sheet out there, and really we only send newsletters about six or seven times a year so you don't get bombarded with things, but you can then see what we're doing. And um, like, for example, we were Steve and I were both interviewed on Conscious TV recently, and so we send out things like that that um, are happening. Okay, your cell phones are all off, right? And mine is, most importantly. Um, all right, so I'd like to just see a show of hands. It's good to know kind of who's in the room and what, you're, what kind of practices you're bringing in today with you. So how many of you are new meditators? Okay, great. Welcome. How many of you would consider yourself um, intermediate Okay, experienced, and you don't have to be humble. <laughs> okay, great. And how many of you have practiced um, some form of concentration? Okay, how many of those Anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing? Okay, um, Brahmaviharas, or maybe TM? <laughs> Or other, there's a lot of concept. Pretty much every tradition, almost on the planet, has some kind of concentration meditation. And really, what a lot of what I'll be talking about applies to many um, different kinds. In fact, we've had um, Catholic nuns come to our retreat, which is really um, delightful. So, and people from many other traditions who just want to learn about concentration meditation. So, this really applies very broadly. But I'll be really teaching you what we learned from Pawak Sayadaw. So that's important to know because there are many different um, takes on concentration meditation in, even within Theravadan Buddhism, and they don't all agree. So if you were to go to somebody who maybe was teaching from another lineage, you might hear some different things than what you hear today. So I just want to acknowledge that. We don't have any... Um, anything to say about those. We don't practice those. We don't learn them. So it's really up to you to decide what you feel is um, authentic for you and what, what practices you want to engage in. Um, what about Zen practitioners? Okay, uh, Vipassana. Probably lots of people. That's how I started out. Uh, Tibetan Buddhist practitioners. I'm the only one. Um, what about yogic, people in the yogic traditions? Other? I always wonder what that is. What's the other? Taoism, yes. And um, that's a, an amazing path as well. Hinduism. Hinduism, yeah, that's kind of, Hinduism is sort of the extension of the yogic path, but has its whole own um, panorama of deities and, yeah. Okay, good. Well, before we start, I'd like you to just, um, because we will be mostly in silence for today, just take a minute and say hi to the people sitting next to you. I mean, it's really nice. You're here with like-minded people. It's nice to say hello to them. Maybe tell them your name. (laughs) 
Good. So you'll be able to talk more at the end, but today we'll mostly be in silence. We're not rigid about it. So if you've come here with somebody that you only see every three months and you met here and you want to talk at lunch, go somewhere that our group isn't and go talk at lunch. You know, it's, it's, not, um, it's not rigid. But the silence really does help you deepen into the practice. It's really to support you in having as deep an experience today as you can. And I can tell you that it's, you will leave refreshed if you are in silence and if you really just let the practice deepen you for the day. It's a beautiful way to um, then go into your week tomorrow. So what's compelling then about this practice? Why would you spend a whole day on this practice? Or in some case, people who've come on our retreats and have spent up to a month doing this practice. What's compelling about it? Because you can see that um, I've practiced many other kinds of meditation, many other spiritual paths. And so, um, so what is it about this path that's really compelling? And um, when Steve and I finished the retreat with Pak Saida, we, had to, we were changed people in a lot of ways. And I was very changed after my year-long solo retreat. But after that retreat, we had to come back and figure out how does this all fit in and, and work with the other practices we're doing in our overall um, trajectory of our spiritual unfoldment. And the more that we learned about this practice, um, it was like the more compelling it became. Because when you really look at what the Buddha did, this practice was, some people feel it was actually his favorite practice. And there's, there's places in the text, and some of the scholars um, really have highlighted that, that he would go off every year for the rains retreat, and he would do Anapanasati, the exact practice that we will be doing here today. And he just loved it. And even after his full enlightenment, which happened fairly early, he continued to do this practice all the time. And he talked about it. If you look at the suttas, if you actually look at all the suttas, which there's hundreds, which capture what he said and taught and did, he talks about this practice all the time. And um, some of the scholars think that it's maybe as much as 60 or 80% of the time when people came to him and said, what should I practice? This is what he pointed to as the, the place where they start. It wasn't the only practice he taught, so I'm not meaning to say that, but he, he really thought very highly of it. Um, and if you even think about him and his journey, he was born into a wealthy family. He was basically like a prince or you know, something like that if you want to compare it to what we would understand today. And he was very sheltered because his father didn't want him to go off and become a spiritual teacher, which had been part of the prediction. He'd either become a king or a spiritual teacher. And um, when he saw, when he was eventually saw people who were sick and old and dying, he was so compelled to understand um, about suffering and if there's any way to be a human and suffer less or maybe even be free from suffering. And so he went out and found the best teachers of the day, the people that were the most advanced people of his day, and that's who he studied with, which is what we would all do. And the people he went to taught him this practice. And so this is really, this practice predates even the Buddha. And it's thought that it may be as old as 5,000 years 
which you kind of wonder, you know, how many things in humanity have actually lasted 5,000 years? There aren't that many. You know, like death, sex, and taxes or something like that. You know, there's not a lot of things that have really been part of the human consciousness for that long. And the reason that we feel that um, it has uh, lasted so long is because there's a way that this practice uses the mind to help us free ourselves from the mind. That through, and as I talk later about purification of mind and what that really means, this is something that actually happens. It's not a metaphor. And, um, and so this is why we feel that this has lasted for 5,000 years, because it actually works on the mind. It helps to free the mind stream. So... As you all are sitting today, here today, you're, you're kind of joining in a lineage of people that started 5,000 years ago, of people sitting in caves and in forests and maybe even risking their lives to be silent there with wild animals around and other things um, in order to go inward and really um, turn towards that mystery of what we are that we can experience directly. And this is a practice that can really help us do that in a profound way. And the fact that the Buddha not only did this practice through his life, but at the moment of his death, and he knew he was going to die. He had predicted that he was going to die and knew what was coming. This was the practice he chose to do. And so we can't really know why he did that. But to me, that is very compelling, that a fully enlightened being at the moment of his death would choose to be doing this practice. So this is part of what's compelling about the practice. And you're joining in this lineage of people over 5,000 years who have um, found it valuable. So on a practical level, there's, there's four other reasons to do the practice. One is for the serenity. And um, sometimes people forget that this is a concentration practice, but it's also a serenity practice. And life today can be very chaotic, hectic, demanding. Um, we've got all our devices and TVs blaring at us at the gas station now when you get out to pump your gas. And so having a practice that is really um, designed in part to cultivate serenity can be really useful in our daily lives. And I'll talk at the end about daily practice and some advice about, you know, how do you decide what to do and how to do it, what's most useful. But this practice can be really helpful when you're in a stressful period of life to really bring some serenity of just being with your breath and just resting there and noticing the tranquility and the calm that is always available in any moment. So that's one reason. The other is the concentration that can develop. And I'll talk a little bit after lunch about some of the brain research that's coming out, some of the neuroscience, which is fascinating. But uh, what is being found and discovered is that our brains are actually changing based on our technology use now, with the constant ping of the phone and looking at it and then getting a dopamine hit that makes us look at it more. All of this is actually 
in our physiology. And so we have another program we teach that's really for people maybe who don't even, aren't even interested in meditation, but they're addicted to their devices and they want to reduce the addiction. And that one's in, um, I think, October. But uh, this practice is a great antidote for the distraction that's starting to become more and more um, actually embedded in our consciousness. So it's, it's a kind of a counteract, counteraction to that. Um, I read an article a few weeks ago, and again, I'll talk about this more with the, the neuroscience, but it was about, it was called I Don't Know How to Read. And it was about how we've gotten so used to reading, you know, four paragraphs that people, a lot of people are finding that when they sit down to read a book, they can't actually stay with it for the length of time it takes because it takes concentration. So this practice really can um, help you cultivate the capacity to really stay with something and to uh, be with it in a way that's non-distracted, whether that's somebody who's talking to you in a conversation, you want to give them your full attention, whether that's something at work you have to do that requires that you stay with it for a long time and really um, deepen in your contact with what's happening, this is a great practice to really develop that capacity. And then there's two aspects that are more um, on the spiritual end of this practice. And one reason to do this is for the purification of mind that happens. And I'll give a whole section of a, a, a talk on that later. Purification of mind is something that really... Um, as we just come back to the breath over and over, it purifies the mind stream so that it deconditions our habitual thought patterns. And it really confronts that conditioning in a way that allows for us to have the possibility of being in touch with our deeper nature that is normally obscured with all of our compulsive thinking patterns which you will see the minute you try and meditate. You will see what your compulsive thinking patterns are. So this practice allows us to decondition that and have the capacity to turn away from repetitive compulsive thoughts that some many of them cause us to suffer. So it allows for the mind stream to be... Um, to be conditioned in such a way that we have more access to our deeper nature. And that is the fourth reason to do the practice, is what we call thinning of the me. And this is, um, in a lot of ways, this is the, the more spiritual purpose of any meditation, is to thin out that sense of me so that our deeper nature can shine through and we can really be in contact with the profundity and the peace and the truth that really is our nature that is normally obscured. And this practice, if it's done long enough, if it's done intensively enough, really can thin out that um, sense of the me that really makes up what we think we are, which at its deepest um, teaching, Buddhism is about freedom from being um, being trapped in 
the level of delusion that causes us to suffer. And this is what the Buddha was all about, was finding out if there's a way to be free from that. So this practice really helps thin out that sense of the me that we feel um, is what we are that blocks us from being in touch with the deeper truth of what we are that goes beyond the body, that goes beyond our personality. And so, you know, if you are coming to practice in part for the question, you know, what am I really? What happens after I die? There's a way to actually be in touch with what we are at a deeper level through this process of the thinning of the me. So that's the potential of this practice, and these are some of the reasons you might want to consider adding this to your um, spiritual um, unfoldment as part of your path. So this is, uh, there are three stages. Within Theravadan Buddhism, there are really three stages of the path. So just to orient you, where is Samatha, which is what we're talking about today. So the first stage is called Sila. And uh, sometimes this is translated to something like ethics, but we really don't see it that way. We like uh, to see it as wholesome living. So, and I love Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters talk about living in harmony without regret. So really, sila is something that anybody on a spiritual path should be doing. And even people who don't meditate, like in Buddhism, there are a lot of people who only practice sila, especially in Asia, where it's about aligning your life such that your outer life mirrors the inner knowing that you have. So, for example, over the years, um, I've come back every year and question, is my life really reflecting my inner knowing? And over the years, I've done things like stop having TV broadcast into my house, which happened like 15 years ago, or stop drinking alcohol. You know, I've been a vegetarian on and off over time. So this isn't to say that you all have to do these things, but it's more of like bringing consciousness to your life and to how you're living it. And that sila really supports them. When you come and sit down and meditate, you don't have regrets or you aren't distracted with a lot of kind of unwholesome um, input into your system. And with the technology and the access we have today, it's even more important to really be conscious about what we're letting in and the quantity that we're letting in. So, so this is really the first uh, level of the practice, the sila. And then samatha is the next, which uh, translates to both concentration and serenity. And it's also known as purification of mind. And a lot of times people think this is like metaphorical, but really when you're doing this practice, especially intensively like on a retreat, but even in daily practice, you can really start feeling that um, the places where you get hooked may lessen. So if, say that, I'll just use driving and having somebody cut in front of you as an example, you know, maybe at one point that would really, you'd be angry for five or ten minutes and when you got your destination you'd have to tell someone that it happened and, you know, there's a lot of suffering in that. And granted, that person may have been driving dangerously and that's not good. Um, But over time, 
that same event can happen. And maybe, you know, we have to do whatever we do while we're driving. But the effect on us, maybe it goes away after 30 seconds or a minute, and now it's not bothering us anymore. So this is really, this is an example of what it looks like for purification of mind, where the, the buttons that get pushed in us just get less and less. And what we're in touch with then is really the joy of life and, um, and a kind of being with what is, where we don't have to have the circumstances be perfect in order for us to feel content and at ease and in harmony with what is. So that's samatha, purification of mind. And then there's vipassana, which is known uh, as purification of view. And so in samatha, we're really purifying the mind stream. It's it's a practice where we turn inward. It's, you know, closed-eyed. We're really orienting towards that mystery of the unconditioned, of what's manifesting all of this. Is there some ground that's manifesting you sitting here that we can actually be in touch with? And then in Vipassana, we take that purified mind stream and we turn it and investigate the phenomena of reality. And so Vipassana is really about investigating our experience, being curious about what's arising in, our, in the mind stream and in our experience, and investigating that potentially to the point where we can see ultimate reality in the physical world and in our own thoughts. We can penetrate through conventional reality and really experience what's happening uh, in our consciousness and in even materiality in the physical world at a more um, fundamental level. And so that's really what Vipassana in its highest form is uh, potentially leading to. So those are the three stages. So today we're really focusing on Samatha, and Vipassana is a great practice. I've done it for, you know, 30-some years. So it's not like you have to pick one or another, or you know, you, many of you do other practices too. Um, the suggestion just is that this has been an overlooked part of Buddhism that really wasn't even available or taught until about the last 20 or 30 years. And with Pawak Sayadaw and a few other really well-known teachers who've reintroduced it, um, it used to be only available to monastics. So we're really lucky that we're living at a time when I can be sitting here teaching you this practice because 30 years ago it wasn't available at all to lay people. So um, are we taking a break now? Yes, we are. Are you all ready for a break? Okay, I think that this is a good time. So um, as we get ready to take a break, then we'll take maybe, yeah, maybe we'll take 15 minutes. So if you could be back here at when it says five after on that clock. And uh, please stay in silence. You're welcome to um, walk if you want a little bit, but this isn't really technically a walking period, but there is a room right across there if you do no walking meditation and want to do that. Uh, But 
the encouragement is to be in silence and try and stay with your breath just a little bit. So uh, just see if it's possible as you're doing whatever you're going to do during the break to stay with your breath and um, have some continuity. Just if you want to experiment with that, I would invite you to do that. So, yes, yeah, so we will have a bell rung um, five minutes before. Is that how it normally is done, five minutes? Yeah. So um, uh, Babs will ring the, the bell around inside five minutes before. So see you in 15 minutes. Test. Test. Well, you have to hold on one more. Test. But it is definitely working. Use a credit card. Okay, one moment. Test. You just didn't have the
Okay, so we'll go ahead and get started. So then what actually is Samatha meditation? And um, I'll talk about the specifics of how you do it in a minute, but there's, there's really two uh, different sides of the coin of this practice. There's the transformational side where basically we are um, finding that we're meditating and thinking is coming up and we're getting pulled off of the breath and then we're coming back. And that, the, the transformational side is really um, deconditioning the patterning, the compulsive mental thought patterns that are pulling you off of the breath. So the good thing about meditation is that when you sit down and you try to just come back to the breath, you find that in some ways you can't do it. Your mind's going off all the time. So don't think of that this is not that you're doing it wrong. This is normal. And what's happening when you actually then come back to the breath is that you're basically you're updating your software program. You have a software program of thoughts, and if you, especially like on retreat, but even in daily practice, you can see what's pulling you off. And it's not totally random. There are patterns. We all have our own mix of patterns. And in Buddhism, these are called the hindrances and defilements. I know it sounds bad, but basically, it's just our personality patterning. That's all it is. We all have one. The Buddha had a personality pattern. He had to work through it, too. So as we know, it's, it's a developmental stage in human development that we have to have an ego structure to hold the reflective consciousness. And so, um, but it's not the end point of what we are potentially as human beings. And that's what the spiritual path provides is another stage of potential for our development as a human being. So when we are coming back to the breath just with a simple act, it's like we're challenging those patterns that are basically compulsive. Because if it wasn't compulsive, you wouldn't be going off the breath. You'd be able to set an intention to stay with your breath, and you would be able to stay there continuously for as long as you wanted. So this isn't a judgment, and you shouldn't you shouldn't criticize yourself for it. This is part of the human condition. This is basically you're seeing the first noble truth when that is happening. Um, but as we're coming back, we're basically starting to transform that um, groove in your consciousness. There are grooves in your consciousness that um, research has shown that the average modern human has maybe 35,000 thoughts a day. And when they study indigenous peoples that haven't been affected by modern culture, they have about eight or 900 thoughts a day. And think even with our technology, we may even be up to more than 35,000. And of the 35,000, this is the most interesting part, 80 to 90% are repetitive. And they're not just repetitive over today, they're repetitive over yesterday and the day before and the month before and the year before. They're not doing anything. These thoughts aren't helping us. They're not doing anything. We could survive on a very small number of thoughts and function completely normally. So, uh, so this is really, it's just like getting a software upgrade. 
when you sit down and meditate, you are giving yourself a software upgrade, basically. And so the trans- transformational part is the part where you're deconditioning the old patterns. And basically, with this practice, you're laying down a, a new groove that says, I'm really content just breathing. Nothing has to be happening. It doesn't have to be perfect. I can be content as a human, not a human doing, but a human being who can just be content being with their breath and sitting there. And so that's really, and I'll get into this more, but that's the transformational side. Then we have the transcendent side of the practice, which is where potentially the mind stream slows down enough and there's enough stillness and enough serenity that we can actually be in contact with our deeper nature. And in Buddhism, you could call it Buddha nature. You could call it your true nature. But there is something that is a deeper truth of what we are that we can be directly in touch with. And that is the potential of the practice to have glimpses of that, to have sustained experiences of that, and over the course of time, over a lifetime, over many lifetimes, if you believe that, which I do, we get more and more free. And then we can be free no matter what the circumstances are. And because we're abiding more and more in our deeper nature that is unshakable, and is the ultimate contentment, really. It's that peace that passeth, passeth all understanding, you know, that's talked about in Christianity. That, that, is a, that's, that is what you are right now. You don't have to do anything to get that. So it's really a matter of being in contact with your deeper nature. And this is one way that that can be possible. So that's transformation and transcendence. I'll, t- I'll talk about more, that more in purification of mind and the stages of each one that are potential. So what is really the practice then? Um, this is a present moment practice. So that's the first thing to say. Any meditation really is a present moment practice. Visualizations aren't present moment practices, but a meditation is really bringing you into the present moment, into what's happening right now. And this is where the breath is such a great place to rest our awareness because it's always there. You don't have to do anything to have the breath be there. A lot of meditations you have to create something or add something. This is used in many, many traditions, the breath, because it's already there and it's so easy to be aware of. So In this practice, in any concentration practice, we are aware of our object of meditation. In this case, it's the breath. So technically, this practice is called anapanasati in Pali, which means mindfulness of breathing. And we are aware of the breath to the exclusion of everything else. So we don't need to push away other things. We don't need to be aversive. But we're just using the breath as kind of a resting place to just be like, ah. Like people who've done this practice a lot, some of them, it kind of gets to be a touch point where like if you're in traffic and you're at a stoplight, you can sort of just bring your awareness there and it's like, ah, 
You know, there, it becomes a place that's always available to you that is um, serene and is content. There's a contentment. So we're, we're excluding everything else. And really what we're doing is we're, it's like we're building a muscle. So we talk about building the muscle of concentration. Every time you come back to the breath, you're doing a rep, basically. It's like you're at the gym and you've got, maybe you start out with a five-pound weight or a 10-pound weight and you're doing, you know, curls. And maybe that weight feels a little heavy at first and it's kind of hard and you have to really work to keep getting back there. But if you keep doing the reps, you keep doing the repetitions of coming back to the breath, it starts getting easier. And pretty soon that 10-pound weight feels a lot lighter and it becomes to where you're not having to exert so much effort because those compulsive thought patterns that are pulling you away are weakening. They're thinning out. They're getting to where they can't capture you the way they used to. And so this is really the muscle that we're building of concentration is to um, have a capacity which is already in you, of concentration. This is already part of the mind stream. It's like a muscle. You don't have to get a new muscle. It's already there. You're just developing it. It may not be as strong as it potentially could be. So that's really what we're doing with this, is we're building that muscle of concentration. So in this practice, the breath is the object. There are lots of other concentration meditations, and even the Buddha gave us 40 different objects to pick from, but this is where he always wanted people to start. And um, so, but it's the breath, and you may have done other breath, other meditations that involve the breath in some way, like in Vipassana, usually the beginning instruction is to feel your breath at the belly, and that's a really good thing to do in Vipassana. But in this practice, that's not what we do, and you'll hear more about why later. So uh, in this, we notice the breath in the area between the upper lip and the nostril. So this is, we call it, we used to call it the Anapana spot, but then people felt like it had to be like a, a pinpoint spot No, it could be if that's what's easy to notice for you, that's fine. But it could be an area or it could even be a region. Like when I do it, it's more like a region. Um, And it it might move, that's fine. Really the main thing is just that you don't follow it into the body. Like sometimes with Vipassana, we'll follow the breath in and out. We don't do that. It's right here. And part of what that does is it creates a smaller area, so it really brings the concentration in, and that's why it's a little bit harder at first. But we've been teaching 12 years now, and we've never found that with enough time, everybody can do the practice and can um, notice the breath there. And that's really the question we get the most. One time we were visiting the Sayadaw, he he was doing a, um, a solo retreat in... Um, Pescadero, and he asked us to come every month and spend some time with him. So we kept thinking, well, you know, let's use this time to ask him things. And so we asked him once, well, what is the question you get the most? And he said, the question that he gets the most, which is the one we get the most, I can't feel my breath. What do I do? So uh, the first thing is to know that you are breathing, 
right? So you're breathing and there is air coming in and out. There's no question about that. So just to know that you are breathing and that there is air passing in this area and that with enough time, you will be able to notice the breath there. This is the subtlety and this is part of where you're actually increasing your concentration just to be able to notice the breath there. So, um, it can, but it can be anywhere in that area or region. So that helps. That helps rather than just thinking of it as a spot. Um, and there's a metaphor we use called the toll taker, where if you're resting in this region, so remember the, the, the breath is the object, not the skin. So if you're resting in this region and you can't notice anything, it's kind of like all the bridges here in the Bay Area, which now don't have anybody in them, but there used to be people and they're called toll takers. And if you are a toll taker in a bridge and cars are going by, which is the breath coming in and out, if there's no cars, you just rest. And so the the pause or the place where you maybe, uh, it's a little harder to notice the breath, this is a great time instead of getting all frantic about where's the breath, just to notice the serenity that you're just sitting here, everything's fine, you don't need to do anything because the breath is going to happen all by itself. And it's a chance to just be a human being instead of a human doing. And so that's really all you're doing is just sitting there contently, noticing your breath. So that's the toll taker metaphor. If you aren't noticing anything, then that's the time to really just appreciate that you are in a life situation where you're not starving, you're not in a war zone, you have enough health that you can do this, you have the time to do it, and that is incredible karma, incredibly good karma, the fact that you can even be drawn to a spiritual path because a lot of people on the planet don't have that option. So to really make the most of the fact that you have that inclination and you have a life situation that allows you to do it and to just be content. It's also good to put aside, um, as I said, there are different versions of the concentration practice and it can be confusing for people. So we really ask, when you're doing this practice, really just follow the instructions that are taught in this lineage um, and explore it in, in its own rather than trying to figure out how it fits if you know of other concentration practices. So then what is concentration? Because we're talking about it an awful lot and Concentration is a faculty of your consciousness. It's like a muscle. It's already there. You already have a capacity and a faculty for concentration. So it's not something you have to go out and get. It's really a matter of how developed it is. And uh, so there's the potential through that building the muscle to develop concentration and in the practice for it to progress over three stages of concentration. Um, And it's not something like sometimes because the word concentration is a word we just use in everyday life, there can be a sense of kind of efforting or striving that's associated with the word concentration. Like, you know, if traffic is heavy, oh, I better concentrate and we kind of grip the wheel and, you know, get a little bit tight and stressed or, um, 
or if I, you have a project at work that's really demanding, oh, I better concentrate on this. There can be a connotation to it that's a little bit um, tight or heavy-handed. So I'd really invite you to just let go of that and to know that you already have a faculty of concentration. It's just a matter of doing enough repetitions that it can develop into a stronger capacity and a maturity. So as we're doing um, concentration, then there are three stages, and I'll use the metaphor of of a camping flashlight to kind of give you a visual on how the mind stream comes together in concentration. And our definition of concentration is unification of mind. So really what's happening here is the mind stream is becoming more and more unified versus the way that it's scattered in our normal life, which is we need to be able to attend to a lot of things in life. So that's not inherently a bad thing, but that scatteredness uh, can make it where when a thought arises, one of the 35,000 thoughts that arises that you might not actually need, that might actually cause suffering, instead of just going there automatically because we're so scattered that we don't have enough concentration, we have the option that we just don't go there. That's what you're cultivating, is the option to um, have a, a strength, a capacity in your consciousness where you aren't at the, you aren't at the whim of your conditioning, of the conditioning in your consciousness. So the first stage, there's three stages, momentary concentration, access, and absorption. And momentary concentration is like a camping flashlight where the beam, and I'm, I'm using like the camping flashlights where you turn it and the beam gets more and more narrow. This would be like a lantern, So where the light is kind of going everywhere. So in momentary concentration, we're trying to be with the breath and we're going off and coming back and going off and coming back. And it's really the first stage where we may have some continuity with our object, but we also find that we're going off of the breath a lot. And then the next stage is and I'll go back through this and how these relate to a practice like Vipassana once I've gone through how this works in Samatha. So in access concentration, and there's a big range of access, so there's momentary and then access concentration starts where you might be with the breath for maybe a minute or 30 seconds, and then that turns into two or three minutes, and that turns into five minutes, and that turns into a thought arises, and you know that it's there, but you don't go to it, and then that might turn into 10 minutes. And especially on retreat, this can actually get to where people are sitting for 30 minutes or an hour or multiple hours, which is what I had to do with the Sidao, without any thoughts getting to the point where they actually... Um, the attention goes to them. So they can get to the point where they're in the background and you're aware they're there, but it's like you're in a room and people are talking in a corner quietly and you're not really, you know, you don't really care what's going on over there. Two, where it comes up and you see that you're starting to go there, but you don't, you come back. 
And this is where you're really reconditioning your consciousness. When thoughts come up and either you go there and then you return to the breath or they start coming up and you actually don't go there. You take the off-ramp and you come back to the breath. This is really, um, this is a reconditioning and a, and a reprogramming of your consciousness to be more free from those thought patterns. So in the access concentration, it starts with a smaller amount of time and it, it can go up to the point that's right before absorption, which is jhana, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but there's a number of phenomena that can happen in here called the jhana factors. I'll talk about those later. Where it gets very pleasant and it actually gets easier you're sort of out of the pull of the egoic mind stream. And, and that's getting towards the higher level of access concentration. This is also sometimes called um, neighborhood concentration because it's in the neighborhood of jhana. And this is more like the, the wider beam. So now we've taken the flashlight lantern. I should have brought one. I actually have one. And now it's a flashlight and it's going in one direction and the beam is getting narrower and narrower because our mind stream's coming together. And when some random thing comes up, instead of going over there, we're just staying with the breath. And then the last stage then is absorption concentration, and this is equivalent to what is called jhana. And the jhanas have been very controversial in Buddhism. Um, I'll talk later about some of the history there, but uh, basically a jhana is where the mind stream becomes absorbed into the object of awareness. So it's a non-dual state. That's really the most important thing about jhana is that it is a non-dual state. And what that means is the sense that we have of I'm here and the breath is here and I'm meditating on the breath, that collapses into non-duality. So at this point, this is... It's, it's like a taste of enlightenment because what happens in a full jhana absorption is that the ego goes dormant. So temporarily, it's like the ego is just, it's dormant. It will come back the minute that the jhana absorption ends. It'll come back and you'll feel like a me who's meditating. But at that point, there isn't a sense of me and the object. There's just a, a being. And... This is why we think the Buddha emphasized this practice so much because it's a taste of being outside of the normal ego self that you know yourself as. And so it's a preparation in a way for um, the potential of awakening because it's, it's conditioning our consciousness to be free from the ego self temporarily. And without the ego self, it's really, um, this is the freedom from suffering and the ability to see through the patterning that can cause that. I mean, there is there's, always going to be pain in life. And this is, again, the first noble truth of Buddhism is that the human condition is autumn, it's given that there's going to be unsatisfactoriness in it. That if life is perfect and we're going along, at some point that phase will end. No matter how good it gets, 
that's not going to be permanent. And ultimately, we're all going to die. We're all going to get sick and die at some point. So um, this is a freedom that isn't dependent on conditions. Awakening is that. And so being without the ego self, it's like a temporary um, freedom from that. And the purification of mind is tremendous if that state arises. Now, this does not arise for everybody, and it's really something that needs a retreat to happen. So it's just like with Vipassana. You're not going to get the good stuff in Vipassana at the end point, like what I was talking about, unless you go on retreat. So in a daily practice, it's possible to have access concentration arise. And that in itself has a huge amount of purification of mind because we're getting some freedom from our patterning. And as the hindrances and defilements reduce, so this is the compulsive patterning, the joy of our deeper nature can come forward. So it's possible to have taste of this even in daily meditation. Let's see, anything else I want to say? It's really easy to, um, for people to confuse a high level of access concentration with jhana. And so this is part of where it's really important to have a teacher who really knows the territory in this practice. Um, like when I used to do Vipassana retreats, I would have such a high level of access concentration and come in and report because in Vipassana, so there's two, there's a number of different kinds of meditation, just categories, and the brain researchers are really teasing this apart. Concentration meditation is what's called um, focused attention. So if you're doing a mantra, you, you were asking me about TM or the Brahma Viharas, for those of you who know the, those practices, those are all focused attention practices where we're really attending to one thing to the exclusion of everything else. And what that is building is the serenity, the concentration, and also it builds a kind of disinterest in our story. So going back to the car driving example, that need to kind of run through that story over and over. And, at the, you know, what's happening to our physiology? If they had you hooked up to monitors, all these awful chemicals are being released in your brain. You know, it's bad for the body. It takes the body a while to recover if we allow ourselves to go into a full-blown um, cycle of negative emotions it actually has an effect on our bodies. So instead of that happening, this is where um, where the concentration meditation really develops that muscle of the capacity to turn away so that that doesn't happen. It happens for 30 seconds and then we can just let go of it. It isn't, our, our consciousness isn't compelled to go there. So uh, so the other kind, which is Vipassana, was, is within this, as well as um, Shikantaza and Zen, and the Dzogchen Rigpa practice, the um, Chitanupasana is in this, is open awareness, or sometimes they call it open monitoring. But basically, in those practices, you're uh, being aware of whatever is arising in the moment. And Vipassana is taught a lot here. A lot of you are Vipassana practitioners. So that is a category of practice 
that only goes up to access concentration. So that's one of the differences, is that in a practice like Vipassana, you can have momentary concentration and access. But because the objects of meditation are changing, so really with Vipassana, your object is the present moment. That is the thing that's constant. But the contents of that, like right now I'm hearing my voice and I feel myself sitting here and you know, I can see all of you. Those are all things I might be noting or noticing in Vipassana. Those are all different contents. So that's why a practice like Vipassana cannot go into a jhana absorption. And... You know, it's not, again, it's not a negative. That practice has lots of good things about it that I'll talk about later, what's happening in that versus this, because they are different. But just for you to know, they're cultivating different things in the mind stream, and a Vipassana can't go as far as uh, ajana absorption. And then also, just the purification of mind is happening really in access and absorption concentration, both of those, purification of mind is happening. So this is where, um, even for people where jhana isn't going to arise for them, and we don't really know, there's some combination of factors that makes that possible for some people and for others, you know, it, it just, we aren't sure exactly what it is. Some of it is grace, some of it is, your mind stream and its readiness. Um, but even in access concentration, there is so much purification of mind happening, so much of the software upgrade that's happening to your consciousness that it's extremely beneficial. So um, I think I'll take a few questions at this point. Yes. Oh, actually, could we have the mic for the recording? How do you spell it? Is it working? Go ahead. Just hold it closer to your mouth. How do you spell Jana? J-H-A-N-A. Okay. Yeah. This is our book, Practicing the Janas. Um, can we have the mic up here? Thank you. Can you speak a little bit more about how you differentiate between absorption and access? Sure. Um, well, absorption is a non-dual state. That's really the biggest difference. So in absorption, there's a sense of, of when the mind stream is ripe enough and the, the unification is strong enough, and then also there's a kind of a raising of our vibration that happens. Like on retreat especially, we, we give a whole talk about these kinds of things. Um, people can feel it happening where like the energy level in the body is getting really high. Um, there aren't, in the high access concentration, there aren't any hindrances or defilements. So basically none of those are arising at all. And this could still be access concentration. In absorption, somehow our consciousness like gets to the vibration level of the first jhana and the awareness, we can't make it happen. There's no way at that stage to cause it to happen. It's like the awareness gets pulled into the jhana. It actually feels that way. And um, and then it's non-dual. Our awareness becomes non-dual at that point. So can you experience the jhana factors while in access concentration? Yes. 
And I'll go through the jhana factors later and talk more about them. Yes, so that's a really good point. It's kind of unfortunate they're called that because they are present in access concentration without jhana. Absolutely. And people can experience jhana factors in Vipassana. I used to all the time. So yes, absolutely. So that's a good differentiation as you can experience jhana factors in access concentration. In jhana, they all have to be at a certain level that's very mysterious for a jhana to arise. And so the the culmination of the jhana factors is also present and, and one is aware of that without, it's not like there's thinking about it, but you're experiencing the jhana factors in the jhana. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much. By the way. Sure. So, um, the question is really just on the transcendent side. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, I noticed that you kept on kind of describing a greater understanding of what you are, not who. And I just wondered if there was any particular reason for that distinction. What do you think? <laughs> I think yes. Um, and so that's why I'm interested in what you have to say. What do you think? <laughs> Um, I, I think kind of I, I think who transcends across more periods, more kind of arenas, buckets, however you want to describe it, of your of your life. And I think what is a little bit more particular to um, any one kind of arena, any any one kind of relationships, or so kind of throughout your life. So mm-hmm. I think that, and I. That's why I'm interested in understanding if you are trying to be so specific in that. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you think that it does actually kind of like apply more to kind of like who you are rather than what? Yeah, well, the who, there's a whole story of, of who I, I am all for all of us that involves our history and our personality. And, and those are all fine things. There's nothing wrong with those. Um, on the transcendent side of the practice, we can experience what we are that's beyond that, that may transcend even death. And that there and the depth of that, which is really the ground of being that's manifesting you sitting here, that's manifesting the fact that you're breathing instead of not breathing and dead. You know, all of that is how, how, where is that coming from? Well, there's a way that we are that. And so to actually know that deeper nature isn't a who, because it's the same there as it is here. And so it goes beyond the personal who to the what that is manifesting all of physical reality as well as um, immaterial realms, which are part of the jhanas. I don't usually get into that on a day long, but um, there are, the upper jhanas are actual realms of existence that are non-physical that we can experience. And then there's the ground of being, which is uh, the ultimate reality in a certain way that is actually it's possible, and this is the enlightened condition, that it is to actually be functioning from that. And so we can't say who when talking about that. 
Yes. Um, oh, is there more? Oh, hi. Thank you. Uh, so, so I have the question about so can we uh, or how to use the concentration practice to um, transform or I mean, uh, yeah, deal with the um, judgmental, judgmental or anxious mind. So especially when mm -hmm. doing work or judgmental or anxious mind. Yeah. Well, this is giving you. Again, it's building the muscle. It's just like going to the gym for your consciousness, really. It's almost the same, except not as sweaty. So, um, well, maybe sometimes it gets a little sweaty. But, <laughs> but really, what is, what's being cultivated is both you may be more aware of the anxious and judgmental mind when you meditate because you can see it coming up. I don't know, is that ha does that happen sometimes? Where because you're meditating now, you're really seeing it? that it's, these thoughts are there. Yeah, so, so that's one of the helpful things. It may not be that pleasant, but meditation actually helps us see what's going on under the surface of just doing all day long that everybody has. People who don't meditate don't even know that that's happening. And they're run by it. So at least for us, even if you're sitting there and you're going off the breath all the time, you're learning something about yourself that's running all the time under the surface. It's just that you're discovering it. So that's something to be... It's, it's something that brings self-awareness. And so that in itself is beneficial, to know that that's happening. And then sometimes we can see how much it hurts. And the Buddha talked about this as the hot coal. That sometimes we actually have to feel the hot coal to let it go. And again, without meditation, we don't even know we're holding a hot coal. So now you've seen that you have anxiety and judgmental thoughts sometimes. Sometimes when we can't come back to the breath, and it's like the hindrance or defilement is just pulling us, sometimes actually feeling how painful it is can help us to let go. So... That is something that, and this is where we use a little bit of Vipassana because we, if a pattern's coming up and it's so strong that we can't get back to the breath, sometimes we want to actually investigate the pattern because then it can open up. But, but with this, and I'll talk about what to do with hindrances later, we come back to the breath as soon as possible because that's the new program so that's really how you would work with that. And over time, uh, you may feel more serenity because the thoughts aren't just, they don't pull you as, as strongly. Investigate the thought and then let it go and then come back to the breath. Exactly, right, yeah. You can just come back to the breath or you can investigate it a little bit to really see how painful it is and how much you don't want to be spending time there. And that can help you let go of the hot coal sometimes. Thank you. One more and then we'll do um, a meditation. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you and telling you that I'm extremely grateful to have the opportunity to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of, of jhana and reaching the state of non-duality where your ego becomes dormant. And I'm interested in the, the neurophysical and neurochemical, potentially the neurophysical and neurochemical basis of this state. 
and how it may relate to the possibility that the self is an illusion, that, that we walk through the world imagining that, that we are an entity that resides somewhere in our heads and that this entity controls how we operate and what we do. But if our thoughts and our emotions, our manifestations are generated by biochemical processes that are occurring in our brain, can we, how do we, what is the, how do we shut down our consciousness? <laughs> you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. how do we reach the state where we are not plagued mm-hmm. by our compulsions and, yeah. and our egos? That's the question. What you're asking, that's the whole question of the path, really, is, is, is it possible to be free? Is, is the me an illusion? I mean, you know, teachers can talk about it all day long, but if you haven't experienced that, it's, it kind of, some, some ways it doesn't totally make sense. Um, but once it's been experienced, then it totally makes sense. So that's part of the potential, is to have glimpses and tastes of this so that it becomes familiar, and the neurochemistry, I mean, um, I was studied at Yale at one point. There's pictures on our website of me with my EEG cap on. And there are, uh, there's a lot of wonderful research going on into um, meditation. There hasn't been as much on jhanas. Um, we've been asked many times, so maybe that'll happen at some point. But um, it feels like it's a different neurochemical situation in your brain. It absolutely does. And it's joyful. And I think good chemicals like maybe dopamine or I don't know what it is that's getting released, but it's, it changes how you experience yourself. I would put out that maybe there is something that is, is not just the body that's happening. That's my personal belief is that the neuroscience can tell us something, but it can't tell us everything because this is hardware. And there may be software that's beyond the physical plane, which is part of Buddhism, that is also part of what we are, that transcends the physical. So either way, you know, in some ways it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you can update your software program. That is the most important thing, is that meditation and other practices can literally update your hardware and, I mean, that was the most amazing thing to me when I started looking into the research was that the gray matter of the brain is actually different in meditators. I mean, this is like the, the, the brain itself is different. So um, just, it sounds like, really, just from coming back to your breath over and over, it's gonna, that's going to happen. But what's happening is that all these patterns that cause the bad chemicals aren't getting run over 35,000 times a day. Maybe they're getting run over 5,000 times a day or 2,000 or... I don't know if there's anyone on the planet that's down to zero, but um, that's really um, what's happening is that the potential is by updating our software, by doing practices where we're deconditioning that. So I don't know if I've answered your question. And then part of that, if that goes deep enough and people can experience the freedom from the ego self, then we can see what we really are, which is beyond that. And it changes your whole sense of reality when that happens. 
So, I mean, that's ultimately the potential of spiritual practice is to live as a human that's informed, but to know that you're at your deepest, you are something else. Yes. So that's a good point, maybe to do a meditation. Are you motivated now? (laughs) 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 Woohoo! I remember one time, I think it was Jack Cornfield, somebody asked him um, on a plane, he tells a story about this. He, someone asked him, people asked him on a plane, you know, what kind of work do you do? And he said, oh, I'm in sales. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I'm a little bit in sales too. <laughs> but it really, I mean, the freedom is real. That's, I think, what I want to say is that the freedom is real and every single one of you has the potential to realize that in this lifetime. So let's do a meditation. Actually, I think I'm going to start with with the posture instructions so that you can have your posture supporting you. And we'll sit for half an hour. I'm sorry we went over, but we'll we'll have lunch at like 12.20. And we'll still have an hour. So whether you're on the floor in a chair, really feel your feet or your knees supported on the ground and really feel the support of the earth underneath you, our mother that sustains our life as physical beings, the life of the whole planet. And then moving up your legs Really see if you can have your knees be even just slightly lower than your hips. And this is the advantage of sitting on a cushion or a bench is that you can do that easily. But it's possible in a chair. And this allows our pelvis to have a slight tilt that aligns the spine in an S-curve. So as you move up to your seat, feel your, your bottom on the chair and see if your weight is distributed evenly on both sides. And see if you can surrender your weight to the chair and just relax. Then moving up, you want to see if your belly can just be relaxed. And there might be a little S-curve in the back of your spine, of your lower back, so that then when you move up to your chest, there's the other side of the S, and your chest can be open and not collapsed. Just allowing for that natural curve that we would see on a skeleton hanging in a doctor's office, how the spine is naturally aligned. And moving up to the shoulders. See if your shoulders can be relaxed a little bit down your back, allowing the chest to open and really allow for deep breaths. Having your hands placed on your lap or your legs, either folded or separately, but really just letting your hands and your arms 
hang down loose so that you don't need to hold them up. And if you're on a cushion or a bench, you might need to put a little towel or something under them so that your shoulders don't hang down uncomfortably for some people. Then going up to the neck, see if your neck can be loose. We hold a lot of tension there. And going up to the head. And if you're in a natural S-curve of the spine, your head can just relax on the top of your spine without really a lot of effort to keep it up in a balanced posture. And your face should be like it was flat to a wall, so you don't want to be sticking your chin up too far or sticking your head out. Sometimes it helps just to tuck the chin a little bit, feel the back of the neck open, and really get your head on top of the spine. Heads are heavy. It takes a lot of effort if your muscles have to keep it up. And again, feel the weight side to side to make sure that it's centered. And once you go through your posture, then you can just relax. You don't need to be bolt upright. You can relax into a sense of alertness, but relaxation into the posture. And then you just come to the breath, to the anapana spot or region, feeling the breath coming in and out, just noticing it. You don't have to investigate it at all. Just knowing that it's there and resting comfortably. And we'll sit until about 20 after. And if your mind goes away from the breath, just notice it without any judgment or criticism of yourself, just gently and kindly. Just bring the awareness back, knowing that you're doing a repetition and it's strengthening your unification of mind.
Notice where your attention is now, and if it's wandered, just gently bring it back without any judgment or self-criticism.
Notice where your attention is now, and if it want, if it's wandered, bring it back with kindness and gentleness. And just rest in the serenity of breathing and knowing that you're breathing.
And in these last few minutes of practice, 
Really see if you can bring all of your sincere motivation to staying with the breath, not with striving or straining, but just from your sincerity of your heart of really wanting to stay with yourself in the present moment. So we'll have an hour for lunch, and uh, please be back at 12.20 on that clock. Enjoy yourselves. Or, sorry, not 12.20, 1.20. <laughs> and the bell will ring at 10 after. Okay. The bell will ring at 10 after as a reminder. Enjoy yourself. The property is beautiful, and there's a lot of lovely places to sit and have lunch. Welcome back, everyone. So before starting um, this afternoon, uh, are there any questions specifically about the meditation? How was it? How, how was it with the... Was the nostrils okay? No? Okay, we have a question. Well, this way it'll be on the recording. Thank you. In order for me to feel the breath in this area, 
there's a noticing that um, I need to breathe in and out with some, and then I can feel it, <laughs> with some intention. Mm-hmm. And if I just let my breath be natural, it's, it's soft, and I don't feel it. So it's just... And there's no feeling there, so I have... So, like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Right, this is our most common question. <laughs> so thank you. Um, yeah, well, in your case, if you need to breathe a little more strongly at first, normally we wouldn't want any kind of extra anything being done. But if you need to do that a little bit at first, it's fine. Over time, your concentration will get to the point where that's not necessary anymore. That's what I would suggest. If the awareness is in that area, <laughs> is it even necessary to feel it going in and out? If just <laughs> keeping the awareness there? Could you say it again? <laughs> if the awareness is in that area anyway, which I do, it feels like that's enough that I don't have to be feeling it in and out. I just The awareness just rests here. It's here. The, the awareness mm-hmm. is resting there, mm-hmm. whether or not I feel it. So I'm so, so in order to go deeper, rather than intentionally breathing strongly to feel it, I just allow it to rest there, and that it's okay not to feel it. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Mm-hmm. That's fine. I, I think over time you will notice the breath. That's really the instruction, and the next time I'll read our like official version. But it's really to notice the breath, and if you aren't noticing the breath, then you rest. Yet the awareness is here. Yeah. And so I think that's fine, and I, and I think it, over time you will notice the breath. Okay. So why don't you give that a try? Let sure. me know how it goes. Okay. Okay. Uh, back there. I noticed myself counting the breath because we do that in Vipassana and I wasn't sure if it's okay to count the breath here if we should just stay with the breath without counting. Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I was going to give the counting on the next instruction so I'll just do it now. Um, yes, counting is, there's that's one of the, that's really the main support for this particular practice is is counting. And, and if you want to try the counting next time we sit, I'd really encourage all of you to try it at least once. Um, when I'm on retreat, I use counting at the beginning because it really helps me go deeper faster. So it's not something that's just for beginners. It's just a tool. Like noting is in Vipassana. This is the equivalent of noting in Vipassana. At some point, well, at least how I do Vipassana, you drop the noting once you don't need it. But same thing with the counting. So uh, if you want to try the counting in this practice, you would the way to do it is that you um, one in-breath and one out-breath is one. So it's like, and, and it's really important that you don't count the whole time, so you're not going like one. You're not doing that because then the number becomes the object. It's easy for that to happen. You want to breathe in and out, and then at the pause, you just really lightly do a one. And then in, out, and at the pause, do two. And then you would go up to eight the way that the side out teaches it. You go from one to eight, and then back down from eight to one. And Steve and I have never 
he does it where you go to eight and then you start eight again and go back down. He does it where you just go right back to seven. So you can go wild with that, you know. <laughs> but really what that does is that it makes it where you're not like trying to count up to a hundred and now you're judging whether you did more this time or, or less. But if you go if you notice you're on twelve or twenty seven or something, it which is going to happen, and again, no judgment, just notice it and notice that you were off the breath. So it brings a certain rigor. Yeah. Is that different than how you learned it, or it's similar? Okay. No, it's an excellent support, and what it does is it, well, you know, some of you or all of you can try it, and then we'll talk about it after the next sitting. But it brings a level of rigor that not counting doesn't have the danger is that now the number can become the object and then when you drop the number you don't have the breath so you still you have to remember always the breath is the object yeah yes do you follow your breath down into your belly with this style or you always keep it around it's always here so that is part of what's different is you don't go into the body you um you just keep your awareness Knowing the breath, the instruction is to know the breath in the Anapana region. Is there um, a concern that that could lead to shallow breathing? Um, well, the, this practice, really any practice, if you get still enough, your breathing will get shallow. So that's kind of something that can happen naturally anyway. Uh, it doesn't, it's not necessarily because it's here. I, I don't know that it makes a difference that it's there you know, when we get still, we just don't breathe as much because that's part of really the whole, your whole system slowing down and stilling. And if you feel a body sensation elsewhere outside of the breath or you hear a noise or whatever, um, like some other trainings, we've been encouraged to focus on that, make that the focal point. But this, it's always just getting back to the breath here right. regardless. Yeah, in Vipassana, you do that. So that is the, and I'll go through the differences between Samatha and Vipassana in a little bit, but that is one of them. With this, because this is a concentration practice, you are, you have one object to the exclusion of everything else. In Vipassana, which is a, a more of an open monitoring practice, you would whatever's in your awareness is fine to go to that. And that cultivates other things that I'll talk about. So it's just, again, it's like doing strength training, weights versus cardio. They're both going to make you healthy, but they're not exactly doing the same thing. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I've been practicing with this technique for a while. And uh, what I find was it helps me to concentrate, but sometimes I get really um, tense doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't feel a relaxation. Like if I get feel tense when I'm doing Vipassana, I just t- take a deep breath. And I do pay attention to the sensation of the air going through and then go back to kind of a normal kind of breathing. But you say don't do that. Um, what do you do if you feel like you're getting kind of tense doing it or tight or something Mm -hmm. yeah that can happen because it is a small area and you know the the our habit or the thinking around concentration is like effort so that can sort of happen without us intending to Mm -hmm. it's fine to take a deep breath if that relaxes you there's a lot of physiology that shows Mm -hmm. that deep breathing can really relaxes our nervous system so if you find that's happening 
it's fine to take a deep breath if that relaxes you. The other thing is really noticing the serenity aspect. So on the in and then the out, to, to notice um, that you don't, really, you don't have to do anything. You're really not doing anything. And that can bring uh, more of, it can highlight more the serenity aspect that can offset getting a little tight around it. That's a common thing that can happen with this practice. So there's other ways, like on retreat, sometimes um, if people are getting into that and sitting you know, all day long, we'll have them do a little bit of metta maybe at the beginning of the sitting, but it doesn't sound like that's really necessary for you. Back there. Thank you. As the as my concentration got better, I found myself wanting to go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's after lunch, so. <laughs> um, sleepiness is one of the um, things that can happen, and I'll talk about the hindrances. Let's see. Am I talking about that before? Our next sitting, yes. So I will talk about that before our next sitting, but whoops. Um, Thank you. That is absolutely one of the things that can happen. And with sleepiness, a lot of us are just sleep-deprived. So sometimes it's a matter of really you actually need to sleep. And on retreats, and we suggest this for everybody, but as teachers, we really encourage people the first couple of days, if you're sleep-deprived, take a nap, skip one of the sittings and go get some sleep because then in a day or two you'll be refreshed and be able to really um, bring your whole self to the practice because it is a practice that requires a certain amount of um, energy. So I'll I'll give you the pointers on that in a few minutes. I'm sure you're not the only one though. Yes. I'm curious, did Buddha himself formulate these exact techniques or were they formulated and defined sometime later? Well, that's, as with everything the Buddha did, that's a debate. You know, we don't really know for sure, even in the suttas, whether he did all those things and said all those things because they were written down hundreds of years after he lived and they were memorized. So I can't really say definitively anything. Um, other than I do believe he lived and he did all, you know, he taught and so on. Uh, Paoxida believes that these, this is exactly what the Buddha did. And he is one of the most respected scholars in Burma. So I'm not a Buddhist scholar, so I can't really say that from my own research, but he is extremely well-respected and looked at both the suttas and the Visuddhimagga, both of which were written long after the Buddha lived. And, um, and again, the Buddha learned these practices from others. So if you look at the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, has anybody seen that book? Mm-hmm. Well, it came long before the Buddha, and it was done orally, for thousands of years, and that's why we think that this practice has been around for 5,000 years mm-hmm. is because of that book. Mm-hmm. So our, our thinking is that he learned them from his teachers and that he may have made some minor modifications because what the Buddha did was he added Vipassana. So he took the Samatha and he may have done a few things with it, but pretty much it's what he learned. Uh, but he did add the Vipassana because the Vipassana 
is supposed to uproot our patterns in such a way that we don't need the concentration. So with jhana, one of the distinguishing things about jhana that I didn't say is that jhana requires a level of concentration for that non-dual experience to happen. We can have non-dual experiences without concentration. So just to be clear, that isn't the only possibility. Um, so, but yes, we... What's that? Um, let me just finish this one and then I'll get to you. Yeah, so pretty much the, our belief is that this is very close to what the Buddha did. But scholars could probably debate this you know, all kinds of different ways about some minor thing being different. And your question was... Oh, yeah, you mentioned, sorry. You mentioned it can happen without concentration. How does that yeah. happen? Well, like in Zen... Um, and a funny thing to know is that the word Zen actually comes from the word jhana. So what happened over you know hundreds, thousands of years as these practices migrated around this, it went to I think it might have gone to China first, um, and the word jhana became the word Zen. But they pretty much eliminated all the practices in Zen. Zen just goes right for the non-dual experience. That's like if you go to a Zen retreat, there's not much instruction, but they're really just going right for the non-duality. And, and there's like the possibility of having glimpses because what you are is here right now as you're sitting here. It's not like you're getting something. It's the veils of our um, personality structure and understanding that obscure that. So Zen's approach to non-duality is without concentration? They don't have jhana. Um, there's different methods within Zen. Really, you know, all, well, I won't say all, most meditation practices are, are aiming towards an experience of your deeper nature in some way, whatever tradition that's in. And they all go about it in different ways. And they can all work, otherwise they wouldn't have lasted. So, uh, yeah, and Zen, they have concentration. Like, Stephen was a Zen practitioner for about 20 or 30 years. He'd done, you know, 100 sessions or something. And um, they really, they don't have much instruction. So one of the reasons he really wanted to come to the Theravadan understanding is he wanted to know what the Buddha actually did. And he also wanted... This, the great thing about the Samatha, for people who really like it, this is a very detailed map, and it works if you do it enough. It's, it's really clearly laid out, and I'll give you the sort of progression in a little bit. In Zen, there's like nothing. There's very, very minimal instructions, but you're sitting for hours. And Zen is kind of like the Marines of meditation. <laughs> you know, they used to take sticks and hit you with them if you started to get sleepy. Um, but then they started getting sued, so they stopped doing that. But like when Stephen was young, you'd get hit with a stick. Somebody would come and hit you. So it's a kind of a different vibe than what we have here. <laughs> um, it's, a lot, it's not like that now, but they really give, they give very low meditation instructions. You meditate sitting in front of a wall with eyes partially open. And, but they give a lot of talks around the experience of awakening. So, like someone like Adyashanti, for those of you who know him, he came from Zen and, and he basically dropped all of the Zen and just kept, kept the talks around awakening. 
So there's a lot of different paths to get to the end destination, and they all have good things about them. Yeah, the problem was then is that, like, Stephen had a friend who would go to one session after another, and he'd just sit and think the whole time. <laughs> Literally, he'd spend a week looking at a wall and thinking the whole time, week after week. I mean, literally for like, you know, decades. And so you can waste a lot of time. Um, so they, you know, all the, all the different paths have their strengths and weaknesses. But with Zen, you, you can get glimpses. And so we're introducing that more into our teaching because we find that people have that sometimes even with this practice, because of anything that's thinning out the me, you have that potential. I mean, you may have had a glimpse looking at a beautiful sunset or, or being at when somebody died or was born. You know, there's people who don't even practice can have glimpses of this because it's within all of us. It's what we are. So, you know, different practices feel that there are different good ways to experience that. And that's really up to you to feel what you're drawn to. You also mentioned in the, in the morning that uh, you're going to do a comparison between uh, focusing on breath and focusing on the belly. Um, just a reminder of that. I will. I'm going to do that right after I talk about the neuroscience. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, two more and then we'll um, go on. I love all your questions, by the way. <laughs> this is fun. Okay. Um, Yes. Um, <clears throat> I have a quick question about how to handle the way my mind is operating. Um, I'm f- so when, when I'm a, trying to meditate, when I'm meditating and I, I find that my, my thoughts have, gone, have drifted, what I tend to do is say to myself, okay, it's fine, just come on back. But then today it occurred to me that that is yet another way of distracting myself from the concentration on the breath. And I try just to, to skip that step and bring myself mm-hmm. right back. But even like that caused some anxiety. It's like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't stop and comfort myself. I can't have compassion for myself. <laughs> I have to just jump on right back. And I'm just wondering what you think is advisable. Yeah, yeah, good question. I don't know that we've ever had that question. Um, and I appreciate that you're seeing how your mind's working. So that tells me that you have some concentration, because otherwise you wouldn't even be seeing those things. Um, well, you can definitely skip the words that are of comfort, like, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter, you know, whatever it is you would say to yourself. You don't need to do that. Really, the intention behind that instruction is to not... Um, let your superego get in there and now start beating you up the whole time you're meditating. That doesn't help anything. So that's really the intention behind it is to not, because that's, that judgment and criticism, I, I won't get into a whole thing about this, but basically the ego and the superego, they dance together, and the superego helps keep the ego in place. So like when we do, we've had mentoring groups a few times, year-long mentoring groups, we have a whole teaching on the superego. And we're thinking about maybe doing um, online programs that you could do right from your living room and doing one on the superego, just on how to work with it. Because until your superego goes dormant, your ego is not going to go dormant. 
So this is our little tiny bit of encouragement to um, not... Some people feel will feel that is even helping their practice. Like having that inner critic saying, stay in the breath. You know, that that's actually helping. And without that, their practice is going to be worse. So really the idea is to just not engage in that whole dance of now the superego blaming the ego, and now this is basically just keeping the ego in place. So if you can just feel for yourself the heart, that is really the most important thing, is to feel your heart and your sincere intention for the practice. You don't need any words. Does that seem okay? Yes. I have another uh, practicality question, I guess. Sure. Um, in your experience um, with just working working with this practice yourself and in students that you work with, have you seen, um, we touched a little bit on being able to stay with something like um, improved reading comprehension, for example. Um, yeah. It feels like it, but it would be good to know. Does it, does it support learning and um, memory and like... You know, retaining information when you talk to someone socially mm-hmm. and just like. Right. Yeah, that would be really interesting. We have a student who works with, um, who's involved in a nonprofit or, or an organization that helps kids who are video game addicted. And he really thinks that we need to come in and start working with people like that because this will help them break the addiction. You know, so I'd love to like study this and really have somebody do some empirical research to see if things like what you're saying improve. I can't say whether memory improves or not, um, but it's been our experience and, and my belief that um, the ability to concentrate does improve. Like, for example, I've written several books that have been published. It takes a lot of concentration to just sit there and keep writing and writing and writing and keep your thread and, and not be distracted and go, you know, writer's block and all that. I think this is part of why I've been able to do things like that because I can stay with something. Um, and in terms of interpersonal, if you're paying more attention to the other person and you're not having all this inner chatter while they're talking, you can just sit there and listen to them without, you're going to remember more about what, and you're going to feel more. You're going to remember more and you're going to feel more of what they're trying to communicate. We, in our, in the um, focused attention day long that we do for a lot of people who have never meditated come and we do a whole activity on interpersonal relationships and the difference between being distracted and not being distracted. And they do a role play so they can actually experience the difference. So, you know, you could try it out for yourself and see whether you feel more present to the other person. But if you're present, that's going to affect your your interaction. So I don't have any science to give you, but that's our belief. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to go on. Can you save it? Is that okay? Okay, so that's a good segue actually to talking some about some of the um, neuroscience research that relates to this practice. And um, I'm just going to start with this quote from Einstein since we're kind of going in the science direction. This is from Einstein in a book called The World as I See It. 
a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. The true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which she has attained liberation from the self. We shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if humanity is to survive. From 1934 by Einstein. So, so what does science have to tell us about this practice and about what's actually happening for you? And um, there's, last time I looked at the meditation research, there were about 250 or 300 new studies being done every year. And this has been going on for years, so there's a lot of studies. Um, so I'm just going to give you a few of the high points. But it's really, it's it, like when I started meditating, there wasn't any of this. You had to just go on anecdotal evidence. And now we actually have really substantiated evidence. I work a lot in healthcare. I, I do have a day job in addition to being a Dharma teacher because the Dharma teaching doesn't support me financially. Um, and I work a lot in healthcare, and healthcare is using meditation all over the place because it actually works. I had a, a good friend who um, had breast cancer, and she did survive and is fine. But part of her actual prescription from her doctor by Kaiser was to attend a meditation group, which she did for the whole time, and she's still meditating. So meditation really has a lot of benefits that are now being proven. Um, and there's, there's really four kind of categories of meditation. So there's focused attention, which is what we're doing here, and things like TM, metta, all of the Brahma Viharas are part of that, um, mantras. Um, a lot of, I believe a lot of the drumming that happens in like indigenous cultures is probably also part of this. And then there's open monitoring, which is like Vipassana and also the Shikantaza practice in Zen. And then there's heart-based practices, which even though those are concentration, they actually do something different to our nervous system. And then there's um, self-transcending. So I kind of lump those in with the open monitoring, but the self-transcending practices are like we are now teaching Dzogchen, which is a Tibetan practice that is designed to be a self-transcending practice that can cultivate um, awakening, basically, non, non-dual, access to non-duality. And we taught this at our last two retreats, and it was amazing because the Samatha is actually part of Dzogchen, so it builds really nicely on what you're learning today. So self-transcending Dzogchen, the Chitanupasana in, in the Theravadan tradition, which is what Spirit Rock is, um, 
Mahamudra is part of Tibetan Buddhism. So all of those are self-transcending. So these are the four categories being studied right now in, by neuroscience researchers. And um, so some that apply then to this practice, uh, some of what's going on out there in this world, um, there are some books now, a lot of books, that are focusing on what's called chronic distraction. So this is, um, like there was an article called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And really the idea there is, it's like we're just going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And there's, where is the actual digesting of what we're reading? So there's like this real skimming on the surface of life that uh, is happening, and some of this is actually affecting our brains and our nervous systems. Um, Internet browsing actually does configure our brains to be distracted because it's like we're always looking for the next interesting, shiny object that we want to be interested in. So they're finding that... um, that there's actually an effect on the brain that they're discovering in the neuroscience research. And then, um, and then there's all of the technology distraction. And there's books like um, The Shallows. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but it's, um, there's a way where there's a dopamine hit that we get when there's like a ping on the phone, for those of you, maybe none of you have, have it where it pings, but like every time there's somebody likes what you put, posted or there's, a, um, there's email or there's, there's feeds that are coming through and there's that constant, especially social media, the social interaction and confirmation. Uh, there was one study that was really kind of disturbing to me of teenage girls because teenage girls have a very high, it's kind of built into our um, sort of instinct, instinctual drives for females to look for those relational connections. And they found that um, teenage girls who are exposed to too much social media will actually develop dopamine addiction to the hits that they get. So there's something that's actually, and that doesn't apply just to them, it applies to all of us if we're engaging in that, where the looking, the constant, the looking, it's like, oh, there's a ping, you actually get dopamine in your brain, which is an addictive substance. So when they try and get off of it, it's actually like getting off of a drug addiction. So these are some of the things that are being discovered, which are, have never happened in the history of humanity. This has never happened because we've never had um, the access. I love the technology, so this isn't like a slam on technology. It's just like, how do we be conscious and realize what it's actually doing to us? So we're we're being trained to be chronically distracted. And then there have been some interesting research. I'm just focusing on things related to to concentration aspects. there's been some research into multitasking because people say, well, I'm just multitasking. I can pay attention to all these things. It's, I'm developing my capability to do multitasking. A lot of people believe this. And like I work in the business world, so you want to cultivate multitasking because then people can do more, right? 
Well, there's been studies actually on this because they wanted to figure out how to teach people multitasking. And research has shown that there actually is no such thing as multitasking, that the brain can literally only focus on one thing at a time. So every time, like um, at Stanford, there was some research that showed that multitaskers performed um, worse on a variety of tasks and that they actually become more distractible. So every time that we're doing this, it's like increasing our brain's adaptation so that we're easily distracted. Um, People who are switching constantly filter out irrelevant information, but it leads to more mistakes. And then another place, the Center for Creative Leadership, found that it took the average person up to 25 minutes to get back to the original task. So when we're being distracted, it doesn't always, it's not like we can just go back immediately and pick up where we left off. So I told you about the dopamine. Um, Oh, yeah, this one really was interesting in terms of the effect on relationships. There's a new phenomenon called fubbing. Has anyone heard of this? But basically, it's, it's phone snubbing. So when you're with somebody and you're basically just looking at your phone, it's called fubbing. And, and, and the research on, on relationships now, on couple relationships, there's always been the big... Um, the, Big three, money, sex, and children, are the big argument areas between couples. This has been pretty static for like, you know, 100 years since psychology started. Well, fubbing has now been added as number four in terms of literally why people break up and endings of relationships, things people are seeing counselors for. So, uh, and even having a smartphone on a table they found even if it's face down, it provides a distraction if you're with somebody. So these are all just things that are happening in our current culture that um, lead to a decrease in our capacity for focused attention. You know, all of these affect um, our ability to stay focused on whatever it is that we're trying to put our attention on. And in terms of our own spiritual unfoldment, she's putting a bug outside. I love that. Um, it, uh, it really prevents us or it, it makes it harder to break out of the pull of these compulsive thought patterns that you're seeing when you're sitting and meditating. You're, you've seen them today. All of this makes it harder for us not to just go to that because we're so used to just, you know, this kind of thing, the, the lantern shining everywhere. And I never, when I did the analogy of the momentary access and absorption concentration, the absorption concentration is a laser beam. I forgot to mention this. And the laser beam is a laser. We had a quantum physicist at one of our retreats once, which was fun. And he confirmed that a laser beam is just light, That's all it is, and it's light that is so highly concentrated that it can cut through metal. So imagine that, light that can cut through metal. And I guess now they can even move objects with it if it's, you know, they're getting more and more um, strength of lasers now. So this is really what's happening to our consciousness is that that, um, 
unification of mind is happening to the point where we can cut through our perception of normal reality into something that is more fundamental and deeper. And so this is what is getting eroded if we allow so much distraction that it's actually changing our, our neural pathways in a way that they can, they can study with EEGs and with MRIs and other scientific devices. Oh, here's a picture of me with my EEG cap on <laughs> at Yale. Anyway, so, um, so meditation, and we think that, well, we'd like to think that the focused attention really um, is an antidote to a lot of what's happening in our culture right now, especially with the tech devices and with all the constant entertainment. Like, I used to like going to Bed Bath & Beyond, and now I go there, and every, around every corner is like a blaring speaker or a TV or something trying to can show me how to use this device. It's everywhere. The gas pump. Have you been to gas stations where now you have to watch TV while you're at the gas pump? I used to be able to stand there and you know feel my breath. <laughs> so it's an opportunity to have a higher level of challenge in the non-distraction. Um, but the benefits on the brain, so the one to me that is just the most amazing is that when they study the brains of meditators, and of course they have to do this after you're dead because they're cutting your skull open. Um, I won't participate in that research just yet. <laughs> but they, um, they have found that there's actually more gray matter of the brain. And that even, and you don't have to be a lifelong meditator to have this happen. This can happen in, you know, with less commitment than that. And that they also have found that um, 50-year-old meditators have the brain of a 25-year-old. So for some of us, that's appealing. Um, it increases the brain thickness. And then also to, to the point raised earlier about the biochemistry, it, it changes the biochemistry of the brain and increases neuroplasticity. So they, there used to be, before neuroscience, there used to be thinking that once you reach the age of 25 or somewhere in there, that basically it was just a flat from there. But with neuroscience, they found that if, if a person starts meditating at any age, it doesn't matter when you start, the benefits will happen to the brain. And it doesn't take my level of meditation for this to happen. Um, the MBSR program that some of you may have heard of which has been studied extensively. It's like a, I think it's eight weeks, um, has shown um, measurable improvements in people's neuroscience. So it doesn't take a huge amount of meditation to really see the difference. And um, I had a health issue a few years ago that involves a nervous system and the prognosis was that I, you know, most people don't recover from it ever. And I, I was, due to grace and whatever else, I did recover. But I think a, a portion of why is because of the neuroplasticity of my nervous system. So you just don't know how this is really affecting your overall being as a person. But there's a lot of science to give us reasons to meditate and to show that the benefits are really not just anecdotal, but actually scientifically measurable. Much less Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's? Much less. Right, much less. Oh, has that been studied also? Okay, thank you. I'll add that to my list. Of dementia. This has been 
Wow. So she's saying 20 minutes a day of meditation can postpone or get rid of or not have it occur, dementia and Alzheimer's. I mean, come on. What more evidence do we need to, to spend 20 minutes a day doing this? Yeah. Um, can we have the mic, please? Oh. MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. So if you want to see neuroscience research, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Yeah, and it's taught all over. It's, it's non, uh, there's no Buddhism in it. Um, it's very um, generic in terms of, like, there's not a religious overtone. It's not, it's not aimed at awakening, but in terms of health benefits, it's been studied extensively and continues to be studied extensively. So, and it's really, if you look at what's taught there, it's a combination of Samato, what we're doing here, Vipassana, and Metta. So it kind of includes a little bit of the three different practice areas that are taught mostly here at Spirit Rock. Yeah, you're welcome. So, um, so there's really a lot here to encourage us to practice. And in terms of the chronic distraction and the... Um, the rewiring in some ways of our brain that can happen with the technology, this practice in particular really can help us as an antidote where we're countering that distracted conditioning and actually cultivating, building that muscle of cultivating uh, the capacity to return to what we're doing. So... Um, I'll talk now about the differences then between Samatha and Vipassana. So this is, again, the focused awareness, the focused attention, and the open monitoring. These are the two main buckets of practices. And um, so the first is really a difference in what we're cultivating. In Samatha, what we're practicing here, we're cultivating an ability and a capacity to turn away from our story and ultimately to become disinterested in those ruminating thoughts that kind of keep us um, suffering. Really, most of them are suffering. Even if it's pleasant, like, okay, now I'm fantasizing about my next vacation, that might, you might think, oh, this is a pleasant thought. It's still taking us out of the present. So there's a way that even if we're having pleasant thoughts that are in excess of what we actually need to function, it's, um, it takes us out of the present moment and the ability to actually be with ourselves in our deeper nature. So that's what's happening in Samatha and Vipassana. Because the present moment is the thing that's constant and it's, you're actually just letting your experience arise in your awareness in Vipassana, that's what's happening. What is being cultivated there, so the muscle that's being developed in Vipassana is the ability to be with the present moment no matter what's happening. So really we're cultivating the ability to just be with any phenomena that happen in our awareness without being attached to it where we're now it's pleasant and we're trying to keep it and then we suffer when it goes away or if it's unpleasant without pushing it away. Vipassana allows us to have that inner balance where neither of those things are happening. And then also I talked about the cutting through to, um, to a more fundamental level of reality in the deeper aspects of Vipassana. And we also investigate 
in Vipassana. So we're, we're really like looking into our experience, whatever's arising, we're really interested in it. We might look at like if we are on the breath in Vipassana, we're investigating all the little details of it. So it's a very different kind of practice, but it is doing good things. Um, so the turning away then that we're cultivating in the samatha is really, uh, it's deconditioning those grooves that I talked about that we run over, over and over again. It's confronting those in a way that's saying, no, I'm not just going to go there. I'm going to rewrite that program and start doing something different. And um, the new ones, really what you're cultivating is ability to be content sitting with your breath so that whatever situation, and you can do this anywhere, whatever situation you're in, you can have a contentment and a non, um, a non-distracted awareness that in the samatha it rests on the breath and on the contentment serenity, but in later practices, like we've been talking some about awakening and about glimpses of non-duality, the way those glimpses become sustained is through the faculty of concentration in your awareness. So if you're doing Vipassana, if you're doing Dzogchen, if you're doing any other practices that are more momentary, the only way those practices deepen is with concentration. So if you're doing Vipassana, you still need concentration. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there thinking the whole time. So concentration is needed even if you're doing a different practice. Um, and it is transferable. We've had a lot of 20, 30-year Vipassana practitioners come to us to retreats, and they said, you know, I've had more insight on this retreat. Vipassana translates to the word insight. said, I've had more insights on your Samatha retreat than I did in 20 years of Vipassana because there's a cutting through. So I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but we've had a lot of people come to our retreats, and because the concentration is needed for any other practice, it really um, it can be a way that the practice can deepen. So another difference is that in, um, in samatha, in the concentration, we're really penetrating deeply into the mystery and it's a practice where we're, we're turning inward, we're orienting towards, really towards the unconditioned. And I won't go into all of the levels of jhana, but basically there's four levels of jhana that are in the physical realm that have to do with, that you use the breath for. And then the, what's called either the formless or the immaterial jhanas are um, in Buddhism considered to be actual realms that are beyond the physical realm. And so it's possible, this is very rare, Most there's, we've never had anybody get to the formless um, jhana. So, and, and this is why it was such a big deal when Stephen and I completed the whole path. Um, but we're orienting, even if we don't get there, our consciousness is orienting towards that mystery that goes all the way back to the ground of being, to the unconditioned. So, it's a really it's it's a practice that takes us out of our normal sense of our body and our personality. We're really we're really um, penetrating that mystery. And in vipassana, we take our awareness that's hopefully powerful. If it's not powerful, you're not going to have much to work with in vipassana either. And we turn it towards 
um, materiality, so the physical realm, and mentality, our thoughts, and we investigate that. So it's a very different um, action that we're doing in the practice because in Vipassana we're really trying to tease apart our understanding of reality so that we can see to a more fundamental level of reality. And when, so when we're turning towards this mystery, there's a way where um, that unconditioned ground, and I'm going up because it's like, it feels like in your awareness you're going up. We're orienting towards that mystery that basically the way it works when you're coming down through the jhanas is that there's a sense of the, the grounded being and then there's the eighth jhana. So this is the first level outside of basically um, the ground, the ground that is manifesting everything. And the next level, the eighth jhana, is called the base of neither perception nor non-perception. So can anyone tell me what that means? <laughs> so you, can't, you can't think about that with your mind because it's, it is non-dual. And if there's any thinking there, that jhana isn't possible. So it's like the very thinnest, most um, most delicate um, movement from that ground that manifests everything. And then the seventh jhana is called the base of nothingness or no-thingness, which is really the void. And this is the void that starts to move towards physicality. So there's nothing, it's the base of no-thingness, but that's not to say that there isn't, we, we call it no-thingness because there's no form there in terms of physicality, but it's um, a, a profound silence that ends up allowing for the next realm. And these in Buddhism are all considered actual realms and we believe that this is what people are experiencing when they experience non-duality. So um, the next one is the base of boundless consciousness. So this is the consciousness that basically manifests all of form. And, you know, in most traditions, there's this idea, like in the Bible, we have the word manifested all of creation. And in, in Hinduism, we have the word om. And in Buddhism also, the word om, which is the primordial sound of the universe, that supposedly that sound was like the first, um, maybe it was the Big Bang, I don't know, but it was the first thing that came and created the universe of, phys- of the physical realm. So you've got consciousness, and then you've got the base of boundless space, and then you've got the physical realm. So the space holds the physical So really, I'm just telling you this because this is what you're orienting towards when you're doing this practice, is you're orienting towards this mystery that is manifesting everything. And at your deepest, that is what you are. So there's a profundity in really really saying, this is what I'm orienting towards. I feel like I'm just sitting here trying to come back to my breath. But what I'm doing is I'm orienting towards this mystery that is manifesting me sitting here breathing. And even the fact that your breath is coming out is a mystery. I mean, isn't that miraculous that you're breathing? We don't know why. 
And we don't know why. When a baby's born, how do we know that that baby is alive? Because it's breathing. And how do we know when someone has died? Because they're not breathing. And all of that is a mystery. So this is what you are orienting towards when you're doing this practice. And in Vipassana, we really are, are turning, taking that purified awareness and then turning it towards what is this reality in the physical that I'm experiencing? What are these thoughts? And through penetrating that deeply enough, we can really see the ground that's underneath that. And I won't get into the whole Vipassana, but that's basically the potential of the path for all of us. So... Um, so the two complement each other really well, and we feel this is why the Buddha had them, because they're like two different kinds of exercise. Like, you know, Vipassana may be more like cardio because it's faster and you're kind of moving from one thing to another, and that agility of the mind without getting attached, that's great. That's a great thing to be cultivating. And the samatha, you have the weight of the laser beam. You're developing strength and stability in your practice. And that is like strength training. So for those of you who exercise, you know, this is really... And then there are other meditations like the like metta and the um, self-transcending exercises, maybe that are like Pilates and yoga and who knows. But, you know, this is what you... If you look at your own unfoldment, these are the things that are available to you, and they aren't all the same. They're doing different things to your consciousness. So it's good, like when I first started meditating, I would go, and nobody would set any context for it. So I just thought this was the only way to meditate. I thought that whatever I was learning, was that, that was it. And there's actually a lot more sophistication in um, spiritual unfoldment that is why the Buddha set it up this way. But they're all good, and they're all going to help your unfoldment and your consciousness, just like any kind of exercise is going to help your physical body. Okay, so going on then to the hindrances. So there have been a few questions about that, and when you do sit down and meditate, you will have hindrances. I guarantee it, and you're not doing it wrong. You're not doing it wrong. That's really important to remember. Don't give up because you have thoughts and because it's hard. That is the weight. If it's hard, it's because you're lifting a weight. And if you keep lifting it over time, it's going to get lighter. So that would really be my encouragement to you is to not feel discouraged when you find that you're thinking and you feel like, oh, I'm having a really bad meditation. The Buddha talked about one drop of water many times. When you're doing a daily practice, you're doing drops of water. And if you do that long enough, you're going to have a whole bucket of water. And if you've ever been out in nature, you can see places where water drips like on a rock. And that rock gets hollowed out. So water, even though it's small and it's just a drip... It's having an effect, and that is the effect that's happening to your consciousness when you meditate. Even if you feel like you're having a terrible meditation, it's still having an effect. And um, so I'd really encourage you to to see it that way and to not feel discouraged if you're having hindrances. So the way that we um, teach and think about the hindrances, we use a lot of metaphors, as you can tell. I used to be a scuba diver. And when I was certified, 
we had to do a beach dive where, you know, a lot of scuba divers do beach dives regularly, where you go down to the beach and you have all your equipment on and you go backwards into the ocean and through what's called the surf zone. So this is where the waves are coming in and it's really easy to get knocked over. And the goal is to get out past the surf zone because when you do, even if there's waves, you're kind of bobbing. When you're on the top, you're bobbing. When you're down below, you don't even notice the waves. And so this whole progression is a metaphor for your practice. So on a daily practice, really, you're encountering a lot of surf zone because you're going out, you're not getting out to really the deep waters that often. Sometimes you might, and that's wonderful. And then you have to come back in because you're only meditating for whatever the amount of time. On retreat, this is the benefit of retreats, is you can go out, you can get past the surf zone, and at some point you can start deep diving. So there are a lot of benefits to retreat that you're just never going to get in a daily practice. So if you haven't ever attended a retreat, I'd really encourage you to consider it. So the surf zone, what happens is you're going out there and sometimes waves can come and you're solid and you just keep going. And other times they may come and just knock you over and your mask falls off and your fins fall off and you have to kind of collect yourself and get there. So really working with the hindrances is all about how do you get through the surf zone or how do you work with the surf zone. And the surf zone in itself, you might not enjoy it, but it is absolutely necessary. We've had people come in to try and parachute over the surf zone and do other things, maybe use a different practice they're really good at to get out there and then switch over to the Samata real fast. Everyone has a surf zone. Because when we're out in, in daily life, we need our mind to be able to go different places. So we're going to need the lantern. We can't live just with the laser beam. And so it's fine. It's not bad. You don't have to think that it's, it's awful. It's just that um, that is not going to really allow us to cut through to our deeper nature and to feel the peace that the Buddha talked about. So working with hindrances, there's five hindrances. I'll just go through them. The first is desire. So this is when we find we're thinking, and this is traditional in, in all of Buddhism, the hindrances. Um, so this is a way of just thinking about when you're going off of the breath, what's happening? Desire is one thing. So now you're thinking about something you want. Maybe you're thinking about, oh, it's almost lunchtime, uh, and you're thinking about your lunch, or you're thinking about your vacation in two weeks, or... Um, you know, finding a way to sit that's more comfortable or whatever. But it's you're basically thinking about something that's pleasant. Then ill will or aversion is um, trying to avoid the unpleasant. So when that's arising, you might be, um, maybe you're kind of, you know, wishing that it was more comfortable or it's too hot in here. You're thinking about something that... Um, someone did to you that you're still kind of ruminating about or you're having a judgmental thought or anger or you're having self-criticism that falls in ill will so it's anything that's kind of a negative um, the thoughts have a negative tone to them in that way that it feels like ill will or fear also is part of aversion that can come up a lot where people are kind of ruminating about something they're nervous about Planning planning is a common pattern and can really fall in desire because now I'm planning my next vacation or what I'm going to do at work three days from now. 
Um, or it can also be um, planning can be fear-related. I'm planning that hard, difficult conversation I'm going to have with somebody that I really don't want to have. And, oh, should I tell them? Should I not tell them? Oh, if I tell them, they're going to be angry. You know, and now you're lost in this whole thought about something that you're fearful about. So that counts as ill will, too. Sloth and torpor. We had a question about sleepiness, and I'll get to that specifically in a minute. But sloth and torpor is kind of in that category. So this is just when you're meditating and you're really sluggish. You're just finding you're having a nod, or you just feel really thick and dull. Um, That is called sloth and torpor. Then there's restlessness and remorse. So this is kind of a feeling of agitation where you just, you know, you're always kind of moving around and and, um, a lot of ruminating in the mind can be in this category. Maybe you're thinking about things you regret. Uh, There can be a lot of self, inner critic, self-judgment in remorse and restlessness. And then doubt has usually to do with doubt about the practice. So this could be doubt about the teachings, it could be doubt about the teachers, it could be doubt about the path, it could be doubt, and often in people it's doubt about oneself. Oh, other people could do this and I can't. Or, you know, that's for them and not for me. Or the teacher could do it, but that doesn't apply to me. Or um, it's, We can get into a lot of doubt about our own capacities as well. So with any of the hindrances, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The, the way you handle it is the same. And what you do is, um, if you go off, you can, you can notice what category it is or not. You don't need to because we don't want to be cultivating more thinking. But what you will find is that all of us have like our top 10 songs. You know, we have our top 10 patterns that... Um, especially on retreat, you can see that, wow, I go to planning a lot, or oh, like some people fantasize a lot. And all of this is doing something for our ego structure. I mean, ultimately, all of this is is empty. But if we look at it from a psychological perspective, all of these are ways to reinforce the ego structure. So even if it's an unpleasant thought, if we look at our own patterns over the course of our life, you can see why that's there. It's doing something that the ego structure needs in order to feel supported. So... You don't need to work with all that on a daily practice, but there is a way that having some insight into your own workings can help you become free of it because you're really seeing the hot coal more. So a lot of compassion. If you're sitting and you can start seeing your patterns and what they are and why they're there, this is a time to really have compassion for yourself and for all of humanity because every single human who isn't awakened on this planet suffers in the same way that you do. And this is really the first noble truth of Buddhism, is that as long as we're in the ego structure, we're going to suffer. And is there a way for that to diminish or even go away? And that's the whole spiritual path, basically. So you see it, and if you can come back, you come back. If you can't come back... um, 
Well, first I'll just say what we're cultivating here is a disinterest in the patterns. So this is where, like, one of the things we hear a lot is that somebody will have, they'll be meditating, and they'll be having all these really great ideas that they don't want to lose. Well, shouldn't I be writing these down or something? This is when I have my best creative insights. Where do you think that's coming from? (laughs) Yeah, this is a way you can believe that, and... Your thoughts probably are very creative and original and wonderful. And when you stop meditating, if those are thoughts you need to have, you'll think them again. They'll be one of the (laughs) 35,000. I think it will probably recur. So there's a real temptation. This is where the ego will use whatever it has to keep doing its job. It's not trying to hurt you. It's not evil. It's trying to do its job, which is to protect you from... um, psychological, things that would feel like psychological harm. And so these all have to be digested and worked through. And we don't have to hate them. We can love them to death as well. And that's not aversive. So, um, so we're cultivating the disinterest, though. And um, this is really the beginning of purification of mind. So... We're really just being in the present. And, and this is another important thing with this practice, especially because there is the fact that the practice can progress has been part of the teaching since it was out there. And that can encourage people to sometimes go into the future. So you may be sitting expecting the practice to go somewhere. And that's, oh, sorry, that's something to really notice because at that moment you aren't in the present. And that is a real danger with this practice. So I just want to call that out specifically. If you find that you are so in a pattern, like we talked about this earlier with the anxiety and the judgment, the judgmental thoughts, if you find that you literally just can't come back to the breath, then what you would do is use a little vipassana to turn towards whatever the thought is and to investigate it some. And you investigate it enough to where you can then turn away and come back to the breath. So unlike Vipassana, where then we just go into that on an ongoing basis, with this, we're really cultivating the disinterest in the story. And so then you would turn back. So that's really how you work with the hindrances. And in this practice, one of the things it's designed for is that you will see your hindrances really fast and really hard compared to Vipassana. And our, one of our teachers, Guy Armstrong, who's, been a, who's a teacher here, has been a teacher of mine for a long time and has been actually a teaching mentor for Stephen and I, he talks about um, in Samatha, when you hit a hindrance, it's like going downhill on ice skates and hitting a big boulder. So, you know, you're going to hit that thing sometimes. I don't know why you'd be going down a hill on ice skates, but let's just go with it. So, you know, it can, you're going to notice it probably sooner and more directly because this is a practice that has, doesn't have a lot of wiggle room to it. And this is where it can get a little bit tight, and, and we want to try and relax the tightness. But it really does, it's designed so that you will see your hindrances. So it's pretty effective, right? (laughs) Um, 
And in Vipassana, Guy Armstrong talks about it being like meandering down a country lane with a boulder. I mean, you're still going to hit hindrances in Vipassana, no question. But because you're going from object to object, there's also a way that you can avoid them because the the contents are changing. I mean, in Vipassana, you're going to hit them too. So it's not like that's an easy practice. But there is a difference in terms of the... um, how it might feel. And so to really understand that this is part of it and you're not doing it wrong and this is your chance to really commit to yourself that you are not going to let this pattern, whatever the thought is, this is a pattern. This is running every day in your life 35,000 times. Is that what you want to keep going towards? Or do you want to say, no, I'm going to come back to the breath? It's a commitment to your deeper nature that's calling you to understand this mystery that you are. So this is a real commitment. Every time you come back, this is what you're really committing to, is to not um, just be run by your programming. And the last thing I'll say about hindrances in general is that you know sometimes people will ask, and I know for me I, I thought about this earlier in my practice, like, what is this whole deal with the universe where basically we just suffer and die? You know, I mean, there's some good things in between there, but what's that about? And really the suffering is designed for us to want liberation. So when you see that you're caught in a hindrance pattern, that is actually the compassion of being that's calling you back to what you really are that's deeper in that. So there's a way that, like in Buddhism, it's thought that there are different realms. There's hell realms and there's deva realms in addition to the one we're in. And in Tibetan Buddhism, as well as Theravadan, it's thought that the human realm is the best realm for awakening because in the hell realms, there's too much suffering to even try to wake up. And we can see both of these realms in the human condition. I mean, look around the world and some of the suffering that's going on. People who are suffering like that don't have any mind share or time to sit here and meditate. So we are so fortunate that we have the motivation and the life situation to do that. And in the deva realms, where there's so little suffering, people aren't motivated. Beings in the deva realms, if you believe that, aren't motivated So if there isn't a little bit of suffering or enough suffering, we don't try and explore what's beyond our normal perception of the human condition. So if you find that you're encountering hindrances, it's really good to remember that in in a way this is, um, it's your deeper nature. It's what you are that's calling you home and saying there's another alternative than this. So it's a lot more than just coming back to the breath. Everything you're doing is a commitment to your own awakening and your own evolution as a being, and ultimately the potential for your liberation. So those are good things to keep in mind when you're working with the hindrances. So specifically then talking about sleep and sleepiness as a particular hindrance, um, it's really common and... We're in the afternoon now, so it's even more common. If you find that that's happening, there's a couple things you can actually do to offset it a little bit. 
The easiest one is to just open your eyes. So as you're sitting here when we do our next meditation, I'm getting to your question finally. Um, just, you can open your eyes. You don't need to, you know, look all over the place because you want to keep your meditation. You can still be aware of the breath. You don't need to change that. But just open your eyes, look at the floor or some neutral place, and just let in some light. And you can do it just for a few seconds. You could do it for a minute or two. Um, but usually that will bring some energy into your meditation. Another aspect, another another option that most people don't like to do, but we really encourage it, so if you want to do it here, it's totally um, a great skillful means, is to actually stand up. Because it's almost impossible to get sleepy or to fall asleep while you're standing up. We've never seen it happen. So... And if you're at home, same thing. If you're getting sleepy, if you stand up, that will bring more energy to your practice. And then if you find that, you know, you just do it really slowly. And if you're here, you can do it without disturbing your neighbor. You just stand up and you're just meditating, you know, noticing the breath, feeling that there's a little more energy. And then when you feel like you don't need that, you just sit back down. So that is considered skillful means. It's not embarrassing or somehow some indication that your practice isn't good. If you stand up, it's actually showing your commitment to not be falling asleep because when you're asleep, you're not meditating. It's not doing anything. Um, And then other things that you can do, like in in your home practice or on retreat, uh, one of the things that people really learn a lot about on our retreats is how to balance their energy. And there's a whole teaching within Buddhism called the five spiritual faculties. I give a whole talk on it. It might be on Dharma seed, I'm not sure. Um, and this is true in Vipassana too, where you balance different faculties or capabilities in your practice. And one of the set of, of things you're balancing is concentration and energy. So um, you can, like, we encourage people to, to meditate at home at the time that's easiest for you. If you have more energy in the morning, meditate in the morning. Don't meditate at night when you're sleepy. Or if night's better, then medit- you know, try and work your schedule so that you're taking advantage of your best time. Or if you find that you're sleepy a lot, you could do a little bit of qigong or some yoga or some um, pranayama breathing or something before you sit, something that's going to bring some more energy. Um, on retreat, we sometimes have people do walking. They might walk faster. So if walking is part of your practice, you could do something like that to bring a little more energy into your practice. So all of these things are options if you have sleepiness. But for today, the standing up and the opening your eyes are two that are really helpful. Um, and also then the last one is just sitting up a little bit more alertly because sometimes this is one of the reasons I gave the posture instructions because sometimes if you find that you're sort of doing this, it's a posture that our body feels sleepy in. So you might just, you know, if you find you're getting sleepy, just sit up a little bit straighter, try and remember the posture instructions and align yourself. And just that alignment of the spine alone will make for a better energy flow for your meditation. So these are all ways to work with um, sleepiness. And then sinking mind is um, another hindrance that is relevant for this practice where I mentioned the concentration and the energy that 
what happens ideally in your practice over time and then on retreat, people can really work with this a lot to where their practice evens out, is that at first you're probably going to have what's called rising mind, where you're thinking too much and the energy may be higher than the concentration. As your sitting settles a little bit, you may find that your concentration exceeds your energy. And so you can get sleepy, but even if you're not sleepy, there's sinking mind. And this, is, this isn't something we made up. This is from Buddhism, where the concentration is high, but there isn't a brightness in the mind. So what happens with sinking mind is, and unfortunately there have been people who thought this was jhana. So if you're one of them, I'm sorry for what I'm going to describe. But basically there's concentration. So your mind isn't going everywhere with thinking, but um, it's kind of like in sinking mind, and I, I get sinking mind sometimes when I'm first on retreat until my energy catches up. It's like the mind just sort of does this. And you're sitting and there's no thoughts and it's dreamy. It's like being in a cloud. You're sort of all wrapped up and it's cozy and um, it's kind of nice. And I've actually heard meditation instructions like on the radio and other places where they're trying to get you there to, to this state because it is pleasant and there isn't thinking. So if you find yourself here, again, You don't need to judge it or anything. It tells you that your concentration is decent. But this isn't really the most skillful because the brightness isn't in the mind and you aren't actually aware of the breath usually. Usually it starts with the breath and then it kind of just goes into this dullness. So with sinking mind, the instructions are the same with the opening the eyes, the standing up. What's important is just to notice that it's sinking mind. That's the main thing because it is pretty pleasant. And um, I mean, you can enjoy it if you want to, but it's, there, it doesn't have the brightness of the mind that's really going to lead to um, your practice deepening. So now that we talked about hindrances and jhana factors, we, well, we haven't talked about jhana factors. I'd like to talk now more about purification of mind and what really is that because it's a big part of this practice and it's a lot of the benefits of the practice even if somebody doesn't attain jhana. The purification of mind that's happening is really um, profound. And now that I've been teaching for 12 years and some of the students that I have have been there the whole 12 years, I can really see how much people have changed and how much better their lives are, and how much less suffering they have, honestly, for people who are really committed. And that's true of of any meditation, so I'm not saying this is the only one that does it, but um, they are having purification of mind that's lasting, that isn't just when you're on the cushion. So what does this look like? Because this is really the benefit of the practice. Let's just put jhana aside. And purification of mind, really, in our view, is why you're doing it. So I talked before about transformation and transcendence. And I'd like now to go through what does that really look like. So on the transformation side of this, this is where you're basically you're digesting and getting free from personality material. 
So this is on the harder side where you're kind of working with the personality and and um, having to work through your conditioning, which this conditioning happens because we come into the world and the adults around us are teaching us about the world and we leave that ground because all of the sustenance and good things that come to us come from outside. And so we start orienting to the outside instead of to our deeper nature. This is just part of the human condition, so there's nothing wrong with it. And then we figure out what is wanted and needed in our environment, and we do that. And that's called conditioning. We're taught how to not run and yell in the house. We're taught how to get along in our family dynamics. All of these were taught culturally, and different cultures have different conditioning. So all of this is part of your conditioning that um, tells you that this is what you need to do to be safe. Basically, it's tied directly to the survival instinct. So as we start digesting that and getting free from that, this is really the stages that can happen. So in the beginning, we are completely identified with our personality. This is who I am. This is just how I am. And that, unfortunately, is the condition of most of humanity. And they will go their whole lives like that without knowing that there's any other option, unfortunately. The next possibility is to actually start seeing that there's patterns in your consciousness. And if you start meditating, you will start seeing that there are patterns. So then it's kind of like, oh, there's a pattern. There's a little bit of space there. Can you feel that? So instead of being completely identified, this is how I am, and if the person cuts me off in traffic, I lay on the horn and I drive up. You know, I'm not saying you're doing that, but whatever the pattern is, it's like we just act it out. Well, now we can start to see, oh, there's a pattern. Well, I really don't want to get angry, but I still really feel angry. You know, We see it's a pattern. We aren't completely identified with it anymore. That's the next step. Then, as we're meditating more and more, we can start seeing some space. Because when you come back to the breath, when those patterns arise, you can see that it's possible that the pattern starts arising in your consciousness, and you might go there and look at it, but then you don't go there. And that there's actually an option to not go there. This isn't a must. You aren't your pattern. That is not what you are. It's conditioning. And there is another alternative. So you start seeing that those patterns are, um, are not you. These are not me. And then you really have some space. Even though you may still be compulsively doing them. You may wish you didn't get upset or angry or sad or whatever it is that's causing the suffering. But you can see that there's some space. And maybe it happens less. And then the patterns start diminishing. And so a button gets pushed and you don't react. Or you react 25% of what you might have reacted two or three years ago. And your friends start saying, gosh, you seem a little bit different. Or your family members. And they start diminishing to where they're not compulsive. To where you have to go there because this thought is coming up. And over time, it's possible that some of these patterns can actually drop away. That it's like a hand of cards. At the end of our retreats, we tell people, okay, you may have come in with a hand of cards. What can you discard and lay down? 
and not pick up? And what can you pick up of your deeper nature maybe that is now replacing that? So it really is possible. We've seen it in so many people that it is possible this can happen for you. For you. And then um, at some point, if that pattern drops, that is what we call the thinning of the me. Because all those veils that keep you from just being content with things as they are, those start thinning. And the suffering lessens and the joy increases. That's transformation. On the transcendent side, there's also a series of stages. So this is where we're in touch with our deeper nature. The first stage is that there's no contact with our deeper nature. And again, unfortunately, this is the vast majority of humanity. The second stage is we start getting interested. Maybe we've had a spontaneous experience of some kind, Maybe you have had a spontaneous experience of some kind that made you see that maybe there's something more and you want more of that. Or you hear about meditation or you meditate and you can see there's some freedom there and you start getting interested. So there's interest. And then over time there's some contact. Maybe you do a day long. Maybe you do a retreat. or there's, It just happens spontaneously because enough drops of water are in the bucket now for that to happen. And you start having some contact with your deeper nature. And for most people, once that starts happening, you want more. That's what happened to me, was that when it started happening, I knew that that was what I wanted my life to be like. So it does become something that is self-reinforcing when you start having that contact because the freedom that the Buddha talked about and other spiritual masters, you know that this is possible for you in your consciousness. It's not just other, others. And then at some point, as we get closer and closer to the possibility, like with jhana arising, there's a threshold where that possibility of the ego self going dormant becomes a real possibility. And usually, not for everybody, but at some point, if one goes far enough in the path, fear will come up. Because we know that what we thought we were is receding. And maybe there's something else that's deeper. But what's familiar is the ego self. And so there's a period where we have to really um, honor the job that the ego has been trying to do, which is it's been trying to keep us safe and help us feel safe. It's basically just defense mechanisms is all it's doing. So when they're not there, that can feel a little exposed. So, you know, the good news is you're not going to wake up faster than you're ready for it. That's the good and the bad news. Um, but as we have more and more contact with our deeper nature, we trust it. And we can feel that there's a safety. That is safer than being in the me. And so that relaxation of the personality structure can happen without force, without prying it open. It can happen in a natural way that we are absorbed, basically, into 
that deeper ground of what we are. And then there's the possibility of living from that more and more. And that is called the thinning of the me also. So you can see that the transformation and the transcendence really happen from both sides of this equation and they're both important and we all want the transcendent part because it's more fun and it's, it's amazing and that's why we want it. And if you have feel that motivation, if you've had an experience or experiences like that, let those motivate you. Let those call you to what you really are because those tastes are their tastes of your deeper nature. And you know that that's accessible when when you, even if it's only one second, that second can be the motivation for your path. And if you're working with the transformational material and it's hard to know that this is your commitment to your own awakening and that can help your motivation to stay with it increase. So both of these are purification of mind. And um, there's some other aspects of it that I think are good for you to know. The Bhante G, who's a very well-known um, uh, Sri Lankan teacher in the U.S., scholar, also teaches the jhanas, he talks about purification of mind and also in the Vasudhi Magas talked about as a burning up So there's a way where uh, sometimes you can actually feel that the hindrances and the patterns are kind of getting burned up as we're doing this practice. And this is the rewriting of the program. They're actually getting burned up, and those programs are thinning. They're dissolving out. So burning up is a great way to talk about it. Uh, The actual word jhana comes from the word japeti, which means burning up. So there is a real burning up in our consciousness of the ego patterning as we're turning away and deconditioning that. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's another scholar, talked about this practice as being like a tilling of the soil. So there's a way that it really kind of softens the consciousness and makes it possible for us, if we're doing other practices, to bring that um, kind of fertile soil to whatever we're doing. You can't just throw seeds on hard ground and have them take root. So this practice is really tilling the soil of our consciousness so that when um, we come to practice, it can actually take root and grow and flourish into something. Another way that we can see purification of mind is through what's known in Buddhism as the paramis. So this is kind of the perfections of the person. And really what that means is just you become a better person. You don't get triggered as much. You may have more um, compassion and empathy for others. You may do less harm in the world. And all of this can be a way of seeing purification of mind, that this is what's happening to us. We're becoming um, more changing in some way. It may be subtle, it may be dramatic, but we can see that there's a change in who we are. And then the absence of the hindrances is another way we can see it, and especially on retreat. people, Most people, I'd say almost everybody on our retreats has some level of access concentration where they're really seeing the hindrances diminishing. So these are the five I talked about, the the, um, desire, ill will, um, 
sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt, those start going down and our personality patterning starts quieting. And at the same time, what's arising that replaces those is the jhana factors in this practice. And in Vipassana, you can experience jhana factors in any meditation because they're really a byproduct of the unification of mind. So jhana factors aren't something we can just make happen. They come because the mind stream is unifying. So it's like our deeper nature that's always there starts being able to shine through. And so as the hindrances go down, the jhana factors come up. And um, the absence of hindrances, one thing that can be really profound is that in access concentration, people can really feel like they are free from the hindrances for some time. I mean, it's possible to have a sitting where you may be free of hindrances for five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour for a day on retreat. Um, And even though that's not jhana, that is a taste of liberation, being free from hindrances and to know yourself without that kind of perpetual motion machine of the ego self that's always trying to get something. And basically the ego is its driving machine. And when that stops, um, it's a taste in a way of awakening. And as I said before, for in the Hindu tradition, the jhana path, reaching the eighth jhana, is considered full enlightenment. So there are other traditions where this practice is the entire path of awakening. And the eighth jhana is considered enlightenment. That's the end of the path. That's what the Buddha was told by his teachers. When he finished the eighth jhana, they were like, you're done. Go and teach. So um, in Buddhism, there Vipassana and then in Tibetan Buddhism, other things were added. But this, this path does stand on its own in, other, in some traditions as um, a full path to awakening. And then the last way to see purification of mind is the arising of the jhana factors. So I'll go through what those are now. And... Um, And first to say the jhana factors are not emotions. So even though they have names that sound like emotions, they they can't, it's not like we can just read a Hallmark card and now the jhana factor arises or play some nice music or something. So just to be clear that they they are byproducts of the concentration of the mind stream um, detaching from our conditioning and becoming more capable of resting in our deeper nature. So there are five jhana factors, and I'll go through the Pali names and the English names. So the first is vitaka, and that is applied attention. I'll go back and then describe them. Vichara, which is sustained attention. Piti, which is joy or sometimes called rapture. Sukha, which is happiness or bliss. And ekagata, which is one-pointedness. So the first jhana factor, applied attention, is where we're basically just bringing our awareness back to the breath over and over. We're applying our attention to our object of meditation. That's what that is. Sustained attention is when you are sitting and you might find that you're with the breath for some time and you're not having to really make an effort, like you're, you're on the breath, and then it's just maintaining a little. I mean, maybe it's 20 seconds, maybe it's a minute. You know, there's a huge range of how long that can happen. But you're finding there's a little bit of 
continuity where you don't have to make as much effort to get out of the pull of the ego mind because there's a huge gravitational pull to that. So we're, part of what we're doing here is we're learning how to get out of that. Then PT, which is um, joy or rapture, can start when the mind stream is calm and we're starting to have more sustained periods where we're not going into thinking. And this really feels like a kind of um, blissfulness. It's, it can be very, very mild, or it can be pleasant, like on retreats, we give a whole talk on PT and what to do with it, um, where it can be so strong that it's almost too much. I know that's hard to believe as we're sitting here doing daily practice, but it's, it, a lot of people experience it on retreat. And really, it's, we think that it's part, part of it is the, the, um, your nervous system clearing out and being able to rise up to the vibration of jhana or other more um, refined experiences within your consciousness. So it's like your consciousness is getting cleared out, thinned out. And then sukha, PT is more bodily experience. Sukha is experienced more as a mental factor that is like happiness or bliss. So there's kind of a bubbly quality. It's, there's a lightness. It feels kind of effervescent and um, fine. And, and there's just a happiness as part of that. And then the last one, ekagata, is one-pointedness. And this is really the laser. So the sustain, sometimes people, it's hard to tell the difference between sustained attention where you're with the breath and one-pointedness, but when you've experienced one-pointedness, you can start telling the difference because it's like, like we'll hear, sometimes people will say, gosh, it got really brighter, or wow, the breath was just so clear, or I could really be with the breath, and it was not that hard. Um, so there's a brightening that can happen in the mind with the one-pointedness. And then in the, in the jhanas, each of these relate to different levels of the four jhanas. So I won't talk about that too much because not that many people get that far. And in daily practice, it would be unlikely. But just so you have the information, first jhana has all five. So all five of the factors need to get high enough for first jhana to arise. That's one of the other things. But all this is happening in access concentration. So whether you're doing Vipassana or TM or Shikantaza or Samatha or Metta, you can experience jhana factors in any kind of meditation. It just tends to be a lot more noticeable doing the Anapanasati for most people. Like, you know, we've had a lot of very advanced Vipassana practitioners who maybe haven't experienced the jhana factors until they do this practice. Um, so at, so first jhana has all five, then in second jhana, um, the applied and sustained attention drop off because basically you're able to just stay with the breath. You're not having to really make much effort. I know it sounds unbelievable, but there is a point where it's like your awareness is with the breath and you can't get off of the breath. It's impossible. It's just locked on there in a way. Um, so those two drop off, and really in the second jhana, PT is the most noticeable. So it's very, it can be very rapturous, and or it can be more refined. Like oftentimes in this practice, people can sit longer. So like when I came into um, doing concentration, I was sitting 45 minutes or an hour most times. 
Well, in concentration, people sit for two or three hours and they're comfortable. They want to sit that long. So it's like the body, a lot of times our body sensations or any pain or discomfort can go away and that's part of the PT. So second jhana has a lot more of that. And you can see your practice is getting reinforced. You want to keep going because all of these things are kind of pleasant to experience. But then there's the danger of getting attached to what's happening. So usually at some point people have to work through spiritual materialism, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, in the third jhana, piti drops away. So basically you've got sukha and ekagata. You've got the happiness and the one-pointedness. And this point, the one-pointedness gets really strong. I mean, it's really the purification of mind that's happening. It's like, wow, can I really tolerate this much? You can really feel it. Um, but your system comes up, keeps coming up in vibration to the level that it's possible basically, for you. And then in the fourth jhana, um, sukha drops off and all that's left is one-pointedness and then another jhana factor comes in called ekagata, which is equanimity. So in the fourth jhana, you have the, one point, you have the laser and you have the equanimity of just, like in Zen, they sometimes talk about um, the suchness, like everything is just as it is and and. Even the imperfection has a beauty to it. Like you can just really feel that there's a rightness even with things that are imperfect. And there's a lot of peace in that. Uh, And then the last thing I'll say about jhana factors is that in this lineage, you never take the jhana factor as an object. So when jhana factors start arising, you don't, then go to that as your object. You can know that they're there and that's fine. Just the way if there was a sound in the room or a pain or whatever, you would notice that. You just don't go to them as your object of meditation. Yes, because, um, and there is a lineage where they they switch over and that's why I say that. Um, Jhana factors are a byproduct of the concentration based on the mindfulness of breathing. So it's like, we use the analogy of a pot of water boiling. So when you're practicing concentration, every time you take the lid off the pot, you're letting out the concentration. So basically you want to keep the lid on and that's what allows for the concentration to get stronger and stronger and stronger. A byproduct of that is steam that's coming off and those are the jhana factors. They're coming off because you're concentrating on the breath. They're byproducts. So to take a bite, to take steam as your object, you're basically letting go of the thing that's causing the steam. So it doesn't really make sense to take something that's a byproduct as, as the object. And also this is called anapanasati. It's called mindfulness of breathing, not mindfulness of jhana factors. So anyway, so the good news is through the whole first four jhanas, you have the same object. And then if you were to go on like we did, there's a whole bunch of other things that you take through the first four that then allow you to go into the upper jhanas. And that's all in our book if you're interested in that. So um, how are we doing on time? Um. Okay, so one more thing that I'll talk about, which now that I've told you about all the goodies in this practice, and you probably want them all, 
um, is about striving, surrender, and spiritual materialism. So, you know, any talk in our view on jhanas isn't complete without talking about spiritual materialism and the danger. This is part of why this practice was only taught to monastics, is because there was a concern that people would get into a lot of striving and grasping and become very superficial and try to, like, when I first heard about jhanas, I was doing vipassana, actually. And Lee Brasington was sitting in on some of the interviews that I was doing with, with um, Gil Fronstall. And even when I did Vipassana, I saw this big headlight of, um, I guess we're not going to talk about first to, to first jhana, so sorry about that. Um, anyway, uh, and there really wasn't much talk about jhanas. Nobody really even knew much about it at all. And Lee said, oh, she's getting close to jhana or something like that. And I was like, what's jhana? And this was 20 years ago or a long time ago when this was all just first coming out. And I, I remember I, I used to take the yogi job of cleaning the women's bathrooms up in the hall. And the, the person who was doing the men's bathrooms came out and we were talking after the retreat. And he was like, yeah, I went to this jhana retreat and you know everybody was trying to get jhana. And the way he talked about it was so unappealing to me that I had no interest in doing that at all. And I just ignored the practice, basically, because it was so um, like laden with spiritual materialism that it felt to me that it was kind of like, this seems unwholesome in some way, you know? So that is where we don't want to go with the practice. We don't want it to become in terms of a notch in the belt where we're just trying to get something to now say, look at me, I got jhana. Um, <laughs> Somehow that's a little counter to where we're trying to go with the ego diminishment, you know. But basically, the ego self will take anything and use it to self-glorify because that's what egos do. So this is where we have to just be conscious of what, what are we coming to the practice with, and um, so you know why this is one of the reasons that um, that the practice wasn't taught was that there was the thinking that it would like cultivate unskillful motivations in people. So there was that. There was a thought that lay people couldn't do the practice. Um, There was a concern that people might get addicted to the blissful states that are possible. And then in Asia, there was a real concern about abuse of psychic powers. So if you look at Buddhism what's called the supranormal powers, that's the name for it, were cultivated in the old days. And even, have any of you read um, the book about Deepama? So there's a yogi who's very well known who actually undertook these practices and was studied by scientists in, in um, India. And she, they wanted to see if the supranormal powers that are in Buddhism could actually be developed. And she's the best yogi that they knew of, really, on the planet. So they had her do it. And she developed the ability to bilocate and go into the future and hear what a politician was going to say in a talk and um, come back and write it down. And then a week later, he gave the talk and it happened and all of these things. So there was a, there was a concern that people would abuse um, this practice. And so these are all reasons why it was not taught and that it was only taught after people were at the first stage of awakening in Theravada Buddhism. And um, when Pawak and others came out, they were like, 
the Buddha taught this as the first thing that you're supposed to do, you know? I mean, can't we trust the Buddha's wisdom in this, that he knew what he was doing? So it got reintroduced, and that's the only reason that we're even here, is because Pawak and a few other teachers really wanted to have Buddhism be complete and not be just Vipassana. And I love Vipassana, so this isn't saying anything negative about that, but it was very incomplete according to what the Buddha actually taught. But just to give you some history on how this happened, and um, in the time that it's, these practices have been done in you know, the last 20 or 30 years, like we've not seen anybody get addicted to the, to the states because what happens is like when you're experiencing a jhana, there's a point at which whatever's happening in there, no matter what it's like, it starts feeling gross, it starts, your mind stream starts feeling gross, and there's a natural inclination to go on. So we have not seen that, and neither has Pawak, and he's worked with literally hundreds of thousands of people in the 50 or 60 years that he taught. At now, what is under his guidance, he's not there anymore, it became the largest monastery in Burma. It started out with like a few grass huts when he got there, and because his teaching is so profound, it's become the largest monastery in all of Burma. So, um, so I think we can trust him and the Buddha that they knew what they were doing and work with the spiritual materialism when it comes up. And anyone who does this practice deeply enough will have to work with that because there'll be a time when you just really want jhana. And... Um, What's important to know is that we don't get jhana. Jhana arises when your mind stream is refined enough for jhana to, for it to be pulled into the jhana. That is the only way it happens. And a mind stream that is filled with craving and unwholesome desire isn't refined enough to have jhana arise. So it's a self-limiting... Um, system in a certain way. Now what happens after jhana, that you're not in jhana at that time. So that's where the wisdom really becomes important to say, why am I doing this? And to us, an answer like purification of mind becomes a reason that um, allows you to engage in the practice whether attainments arise or not. Because that's really ultimately the purpose is for your mind stream to become more purified and more um, transparent to that ground of being that is really there underneath is what you are in your deepest um, possibility. So we can, we can trust that the ripening of our own consciousness has a wisdom to it. It's like looking out at... I used to have a really large rose garden, and when I looked at my roses, I didn't think one rose was better than the other because it bloomed this week instead of next week. And that's what each of us is. We don't know what that ground of being that is manifesting you right now, that is manifesting your enlightenment drive, if you feel that that is your calling or your desire to meditate, whatever it is that's brought you here, that ground is manifesting that, and you can trust that your unfoldment will happen in the way that is right for you and that is custom designed for your individual consciousness. And that um, you can 
bring it along like an avocado. If you want an avocado to ripen a little faster, you can put it in a paper bag, and it will ripen a little faster. So that's really what we're doing with practices is we're, we're helping a natural process to ripen as fast as possible, but we can't actually control what happens. There's grace and the willingness. You know, people have asked Stephen and I many times, why, you know, what was it that allowed you to progress so well? And we don't know. We've got a lot of answers to that. But one of the things was that we were willing to show up 100% no matter what the outcome was. And that's what we can do. That is what the ego self can help us get to, is to showing up 100% no matter what the outcome is. And then at some point, that ego self that got you there becomes the obstacle. And that has to go dormant. And we can't, con- we can't control the relaxing of the ego self, but we can put it in that paper bag so that it ripens as fast as possible. And this is where really having a trust of that ground of being that is causing embryos to turn into babies without any of us doing anything to have that happen is happening every day. And planets are revolving around suns. Millions and trillions of them are happening without us doing anything. That same ground of being is manifesting you as you're sitting here in your spiritual unfoldment and your interest in meditating and maybe having some contact with the mystery. So this is really what we can feel into when we start feeling the striving is that wholesome motivation for awakening or for whatever it is that's bringing you to practice and have that help you to show up 100% without, with knowing that you cannot control the outcome and that there's a grace and a flow from that ground of being that is holding you in all of this. And so we feel that the Sangha is mature enough to work with us and you know, what we're finding is that when we first started teaching, believe it or not, this practice was extremely controversial. And there were places that we couldn't even teach. And it's taken all these years to see that what we're doing doesn't contradict anything else in Buddhism. I mean, this is how, what the Buddha taught. It just adds something to it. Um, and that we have found that the Sangha is mature enough. And if you find that you're striving then this is one of the many things that gets purified. Is that you go, I'm striving, okay, this is a pattern. This is the ego trying to get something that's actually already here. So I'll take a few questions and then we'll do another meditation. When you're talking about the ego going dormant, are you also speaking about the personality in the same mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So if the ego and the personality go dormant, what's available for interaction day-to-day is the ground of being? Um, that would be one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's still, we need a structure just to, um, 
Oh, I wonder if we should take a break. <laughs> I'll answer this, and then we'll take a break, and I'll do Q&A after the break. The break was going to be next. So, um, What goes dormant? Yeah, the ego self goes dormant in terms of it feeling like that's what you are and that it's guiding action. So like when like I'm talking right now, that talking can come from the ground. It, everything's coming from the ground of being, whether we know it or not. So that, just to say that, first of all, what's different is what we think is happening. So I can think this is me talking, and there's a me that's doing all this, or I can think that this is the ground of being, and words are coming out, and there's a structure here that is necessary for self-reflective consciousness, but that's not what's doing anything. More, it becomes impersonal versus personal? That would be a way of looking at it, yeah. There's an individual consciousness, like even a fully enlightened being like the Buddha, he didn't have Ananda's consciousness. He wasn't sitting over where Ananda is. He had his own physical location and his own history and all of that. And that doesn't change, but where action is coming from changes. And that's where we get to see, like after awakening... It's not like an all. It's not like you go from zero to a hundred. It's coming through a structure, so there can still be distortion in that structure, and that's where, unfortunately, we have seen scandals and other things among people who are genuinely awakened, but they didn't realize that their structure still had material that wasn't digested. And fortunately, with psychology, we've only had a hundred years of psychology versus. 5,000 years of spiritual practice that's all new, we're, we're learning more about how to work with the um, psychology skillfully so that it, that ground doesn't come through in a distorted way. But after awakening, there's still an ego structure there. Because why you look at enlightened beings like the Buddha and Jesus, if you feel he was enlightened, which I do, very, very different personalities. Or even within Buddhism, if you look at the Dalai Lama versus um, someone like, um, well, the Dalai Lama has never said he was enlightened, so maybe I'll go with somebody. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm making that assumption. But look at the Dalai Lama. I mean, he's got a personality. He's, he's childlike. He's joyful. He's you know, very different than if you look at some other enlightened Buddhist leaders who are pretty dour. You know, they're very serious and, you know, why is there a difference? Because there's still structure there that it's coming through. So it's not like our uniqueness goes away. It's just that the ground that it's coming through is impersonal and it's common to every, every human has the same ground of being. And that's where the sense of both the emptiness of the personality and the unity of non-separation from other beings because we're all, it's like, you know, we, we think we are the sole finger that's me and really this is what we are, is that yes, there's individuals, but really we're all coming from the ground of being that is the same for all of us. Okay, so let's take a, um, why don't we take a 15-minute break and if you could be back at um, 3.35. Um...
Okay, so um, we'll go now into our last meditation, and I'd really encourage you, if you want to try the counting, to do that. We'll sit for about 20 minutes, and then I'll talk about um, daily practice and some of what we're offering and um, a few other things. Um, So I'm going to read you the official instructions from our book. And um, again, if you want to try the counting, just make sure you're not using the breath as the object. And or you are using the breath as the object and you're not using the number. Uh, but you might want to try the counting this time if you haven't tried that already. Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight, your shoulder blades relaxed down your back towards the floor and your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and the upper lip, the anapana spot or region. The object of meditation is the breath. You are to know the breath as it passes the anapana region, on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath as it moves across the Anapana region, gently return it without judgment or self-criticism, but with kindness and gentleness. One method of concentrating awareness is to count breaths. The Sayadaw suggests counting from one to eight and back down from eight to one, with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, a single in-breath and a single out-breath is one. Once concentration begins unifying, you can drop the counting if you like.
So how was that? Any comments or questions? Did anyone try the counting? Any comments about the counting? How how did it go? Yes, right in the back there. At first it was a challenge to keep the the counting this out of the breath. Yeah. That to can make the in-breath not be the one in-breath and the out-breath not be the one out-breath. Right. But then it settled down. So it was worth pushing through. Good. Yeah, it's one of those things, once you kind of get into a rhythm with it, then it, it doesn't take as much effort. Yeah. And how about the sleepiness? The standing was very helpful. Awesome. Yeah, I really appreciated seeing you do that. Yeah, so for for all of us, really... Um, like when we're on retreat, sometimes if I get into sinking mind or something, I'll, I'll be at the front of the room standing up. So I really encourage you to um, not think it's weird, that really it's a lot better to actually do the practice for the time you set aside than to just be falling asleep. Are there any other comments about the meditation? Yes. There's a mic. Without knowledge, without knowledge, I um, I find myself breathing abdominal, so I go back. And, yeah, and uh, I have all the time uh, like a vibration. Uh, You're having a vibration here. Uh huh. Doing this practice or doing vipassana also, belly. Uh, I I don't know. Uh huh. I I try all the time to do the, this practice, but. It seems like my body alternates in. I don't know. Okay, so she's, yeah, she's saying that she goes back to the belly. Yeah, that is one of the things if you learn different meditation practices, and of course these aren't the only two, there's lots of others. Um, it It takes a little learning to adjust to doing it differently. And if you read our book, I didn't go over the first to first jhana, but there's a whole progression that can lead to jhana where the only way for that to happen is to be breathing here. So um, it's not like it's just random why that's happening. I've also been told by acupuncturists that there's some meridians that go there, there that are beneficial. That's not part of Buddhism, but there may be some other reasons. So I would just encourage you, and for all of you, if you're used to breathing at the belly or the chest or somewhere else or following it in, if you do this for a while, it's just like you're learning a new practice. And then when you do Vipassana, you go back to the belly breathing. And now you've got two paintbrushes in your toolkit of practice instead of one. But pretty much everybody we've worked with who's, you know, a long-time Vipassana or who has gotten used to belly can switch over if you just stay with it. And for the this, you know, there one of the things that can happen, there's two things. One is that sometimes there can be a tingling here that just has to do with um, with the head center, that when we meditate a lot, there can be more openness in the head center. So without going into a whole explanation about that, it's, it's fine. You can just let it happen. Uh, and some people also can get eye strain doing this practice where they're trying to see down. So I forgot to mention that, that the eyes aren't doing anything in this practice at all. And um, 
and you can just have them relax. So if anyone is feeling like you're getting a little bit of tension from eye strain, just let your eyes relax. Yes? So my main practice, <clears throat> the Taoism practice, is to focus on the belly. And um, after today, how do I fit in this um, samatha meditation into my meditation retreat uh, sorry, routine? And uh, like, should I replace my um, current meditation method with this and give it a try, like um, f- um, for a couple months, and then like see if it works better or? Like I should do them simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That this is a good lead into my next section. So, um, yeah. So we get this question a lot, and a few people have come up and asked about it. Um, we really encourage people in daily practice to, if you're going to undertake any practice, not just this one, to really um, do it in a block of time so that you're really giving it a chance to deepen rather than kind of switching around randomly or in the middle of a sitting. It's like, well, this isn't, I'm not having a good sit. I'm going to switch to that. It doesn't really do justice to either practice to be sort of force fitting things together that are really have their own integrity. So that's our encouragement is to take it up for a period of weeks or months or you know, some people do a practice for years. Um, and that's not to say you can't ever do anything else with it. But uh, if you're going to give this a try, we would encourage you to do it for a period of time. And then if you want to go back to another practice or do something else, that you do it consciously and give it a chance to kind of deepen. Yeah. Yes. So I was with the breath, mm-hmm. and I was counting, but I was very conscious of my chest mm-hmm. exp- expanding and contracting. And I kept not wanting to be anyway. Is that where you normally notice the breath in the chest? Is that no. normal for you? That's no, not normal. I normally, well, I, I, I go to the breath, but it seems differently. Can, uh, I go to a whole body. Mike? I'm sorry. I, I frequently go to a whole body expansion. Okay. Yeah, well, again, it's one of those things. We've only had a few sittings here. Over time, um, it becomes more natural, and there may be other things that are kind of more familiar that may be pulling your attention. But if you were to do this for a week, that might stop. So... Yeah, yeah, because this is the unification of mind. And again, it doesn't have to, it's not awful. It's not, you don't have to be self-critical because you're noticing that. But it just, um, this is part of, of the bringing our awareness together is really having it be focused on the object. And it's fine if other things are there, but there's a difference. You can kind of feel a difference when something's sort of there in the background versus actually going to it with our awareness. Yeah, so if it's background, probably if you were to continue with this practice, the back, as it's in the background, it would become more distant in the background. Yeah. Yes. Um, let's get the mic for you. My question is about the duration of breathing in and out. Is it something that we inhale and wait for the exhalation with the focus here, or is 
quick ones, quick inhale and quick Natural, inhale. yes. Thank you for asking that. The breath should be natural. So we're not doing anything with the breath, trying to make it shorter or longer. We're here for it coming in because whenever you're breathing in, air is going past this area. We know that because mm-hmm. it's coming in. And then it's going out. And there is a little pause at the in, top of the in-breath. So there's usually a longer pause at the bottom of the out-breath, but there's also a pause there. So there might be a place where there isn't anything, there isn't any breath and that if you want to have something that's a place to either just wait, like the toll taker mm-hmm. metaphor, or you can notice the serenity of just sitting there and breathing. And I also um, noticed that my attention inward would go here. Is it okay go to... Go here? Yeah. Yeah. It's like as if my eyes are kind of focusing there when I'm trying to go to breathing, and that will take my attention away and go up. So. Yeah, there can be a tendency for people to to be doing something with their eyes that's kind of like, it's almost like I'm looking at the breath like this. So I really encourage all of you to to if you're to see if you're doing that and to just relax the eyes because there's nothing we need to be seeing. There is a whole progression that's outlined in our book um, that where there can be some effects that happen in the mind's eye, uh, but it doesn't have anything to do with our physical eyes anyway. So, so really just try to relax that. And there's another pointer that might be helpful for all of you that we give on retreats, which is that it's possible to know the breath from, from within the breath. So rather than I'm here knowing the breath, which is how... Most people feel there's an eye somewhere in the head and that's what's knowing the breath. It's possible to actually know the breath from within the breath. So I'll just leave that with you um, as a pointer that is also possible. But just just relax your eyes. Sometimes we can feel things like um, the lady over here was asking about and in this practice there's um, there's something called the wisdom eye, which again is in our book, that has to do with this area. But really, if anything's happening there, just let whatever it is happen and relax. You don't need to put any attention on it. And um, it's just can be a normal part of the practice. Thank you. Um, oh, there's the mic. Uh, so I, I have a similar question. So... Uh, just ask is that I so when I'm trying to focus on my breath here in this area and I notice that so I am so the movement in my body especially in the in my chest is mm-hmm. very um very obvious and mm-hmm. it's very strong and I try to um just okay I notice that and I want to go back to my breath again but it's still strong and it's, it's strong. It's, yeah, it's really mm-hmm. strong. And also, so sometimes even I, I will notice that there are tensions in, uh, in my chest or in some part of my body. And mm-hmm. so I am wondering. So I, it's like I'm trying to let it go, and but I want to go back to my breath here again, but it, it's, it's too strong. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah, there can, one of the things that we can notice when we meditate even for long-term meditators, is that you notice tension in your body. And it can be really wonderful because over a long period of meditation, a lot of those tensions can actually relax 
because with the breathing and with just being here, really the tension is a reflection of um, what's going on in the mind stream. Really, we hold our bodies in certain ways and so on. So you can just, as with anything, normally we just try to come back to the breath. But you could also just pause and allow for your body to relax. Maybe take a belly breath, a deep breath. There's a, a whole physiology that if we take three deep belly breaths, it relaxes our nervous system. So this is something you could do at the beginning of the sitting if you feel it's helpful. Uh, and also, one of the things that can develop with this practice as we get more serene, we may find that our breath is just more relaxed. And that's going to affect your whole nervous system positively as well. So you're you're in the surf zone and it's about getting through the surf zone if you can and just staying with the breath and bringing the awareness so that these other things aren't pulling you as much. Because whatever is normally pulling you um, will pull you. And then in meditation, we tend to have our things that distract us. For some of us, the body can be a big thing that pulls our attention off. I know that's been true for me. And it's just one more thing to not um, sort of get enamored with. So, And there's other practices you can do that actually relax the body. So that might be something to look into, would be body-based practices that will help your body actually to work with the body directly. Those can be very um, beneficial. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so for daily practice then... Um, one of the things we really recommend and we feel pretty strongly about this is meditating every day. So uh, I've been meditating every day. I don't think I've had a break now in about, how old am I? This will make me sound really old. Well, it's been at least 20 years of not missing a day. So, and that started in my t- late 20s of just making a commitment that I was going to meditate every day. And that the way that Stephen and I see it is that with meditation, you can put it in a category of things that you might do, like, you know, reorganizing your sock drawer, cleaning the garage, or, you know, Saturday comes, it's like, well, it's Saturday, I have some extra time, so maybe I'll put meditation on my long list of things to do. You know, this is, can be a way we orient towards it, and we put it in the category of brushing your teeth, which, are you really going to go a day without doing that if you really don't have to, you know, unless it's an emergency? You're probably going to want to brush your teeth that day. So... Um, we really encourage you, even if it's a short meditation, to really set up your life such that you can do this. I mean, now we have all the brain research on top of it. I mean, you can prevent Alzheimer's in yourself. Why would you not want to do this? So um, so that's the category we recommend that it be in, even if it's short. Like some days I have my you know, my day job that pays the bills, I have to be with a group of people where I have to leave my house at five and I may not get home till eight. And I go there. I hopefully get there early. And I sit in my car in the parking garage and meditate before I go in. So when I used to, when I was younger, I was working on my PhD. I was writing BART in. I worked in the city and lived in the East Bay. I meditated on BART. So... And I've worked in corporate settings where I'd get there, I didn't have any time. I went into the bathroom. 
So, you know, we need to open up our thinking about, like, I have to have this pristine environment that has absolutely no sound, and it's all beautiful, and, you know, like, hummingbirds are coming, and, you know, hearts are, like, flowing in the air, and, you know, that is not, that is not necessary. It's going to help you to have a stronger practice if you meditate in environments where there might be a little bit of noise. And yes, it's not optimal. You wouldn't set it up every day like that. But this is your commitment to yourself. So, And then the other thing is, uh, we also encourage you not to base whether you meditate on the quality. So there can be a temptation, and I went through this too in my 20s, of it's like, oh, that meditation was really awful. You know, I just spent 30 minutes and it was terrible. And so then the next day, it's like time to meditate. And I go, well, maybe I'll skip it today. It really wasn't that good yesterday anyway. And there's a cycle where you're evaluating the quality of the meditation is determining whether you're going to meditate again or not or how long you meditate. And again, we look at this like brushing your teeth, where you're not sitting there every day as you're brushing your teeth going, wow, this is like a really good tooth brushing. I should do this again tomorrow, you know? Or or if it's bad, you think, well, I'm just going to stop brushing my teeth altogether. You do it because it's good for you. And you know it's good for you. And that is why you do it. It's a commitment to yourself. So... This is, this is what we really encourage you in terms of how you orient towards the practice, to, to see it as something that's your own commitment to your own spiritual unfoldment. And that, that one drop many times to really believe that that is happening. And then also with concentration, one of the things that can happen is that you can sort of bring this in even at times so like say you're waiting in a grocery line or something or we don't recommend doing it while you're driving because you really want to focus on the driving but if you're at a stoplight or um, you know you're waiting for a dentist appointment or something this you can do this anytime so it's easy to just um, sneak it into your day and have it kind of bring a little serenity and a little bit of um, your commitment to being in touch with the mystery in some way, not just at that time that you meditate, but, but throughout the day. Because this is, it's possible to live from your deeper nature. It's not some isolated thing. So this is a way to really make it part of your larger life. Okay, so I'm going to go then to... Um, talking a little bit about what we're offering, and then we'll do our dedication of merit at the end. So uh, we have a website, as you know, from the list outside, and if you want to sign up on it, please do that on your way out. We don't bombard you with emails. It's, you know, six or seven times a year. And um, uh, our website is jhanasadvice.com or awakeningdharma.com. Dot com, either one, they both point to the same website. We have hot links to free talks. Um, Steve and I individually were both interviewed for Conscious TV in Europe. We taught over in Europe a few months ago and were interviewed there. So if you want to see those, there are hot links on there. And then we also did an interview together with the two um, hosts. And then at the very end, there's meditation instructions of that. It's a TV interview. Um, 
you can also sign up for our email list on the website. So if you want to do it later and didn't do it today, that's a place to do it. We also now, just yesterday, no, Friday, uh, launched a Facebook page. So this is brand new. If you want to go look at that, we'll be adding things to it. And also the hot links for the TV interviews are on there. Um, we have our book, can be ordered for e-readers, and there's a few copies left downstairs, I think. The Insight Timer, do any of you use the Insight Timer? Okay, so the, for those of you who don't know about the Insight Timer, on your phone you can get a free app where you can get one that's $2.99 that has something better, I can't remember what. Um, but the free one works just fine, where it's a meditation timer. And it's really lovely. I use it every day. And when I'm on retreats, I'm using it many, many times a day when I'm on my solo retreats, uh, where it, um, you set it for how long you want to meditate. You can have a bell at the beginning and the end or just at the end. Uh, you can set interval bells. So the way that I was saying, notice where your attention is now and bring it back, you can set bells in the middle that'll kind of remind you to notice where you're at. And then the other cool thing is that other people are meditating. So when you go on the Insight Timer, there's people all over the world who are meditating right at the time you're meditating. They might be in you know, Israel or um, Sri Lanka or you know, Mexico or anywhere. And it's kind of nice to know that there's other meditators. And then you can also see people nearby you that are meditating. And then there's a way for some people who like to do this. You can say, thanks for meditating me with me right at the end. So you might get a little notes from people saying, thanks for meditating with me. And we have a group on the Insight Timer called the Awakening Dharma Samatha Meditation Group. So if you go to groups, you will find us and my little blurb, and then you will know other people who are in your group who are meditating. And it's called Awakening Dharma. It's the same name as our website. And if you just put in my name, you'll get to our website or Stevens. And um, then you're part of our group, and sometimes we make announcements on there. And like, we're, some retreats are being organized, and so some of the organizers, like in Europe and other places, are put announcements on there as well. But it's, it's kind of fun to know you're meditating with others doing similar practices. Um, we do individual sessions by phone. So a lot of teachers don't do that, but we do individual sessions. Um, on a sliding scale basis at either 30 or 60 minutes. And you just pay for that by PayPal, and we do it by Skype or Zoom or phone. And we work with people all over the world, um, either you know if you have something specific or if you... We have some people who work with us on an ongoing basis where we're like spiritual mentors to them. And, and really, like I have a couple people I've been working with for 10 years. So, you know, it's a way, a lot of times, one of the things that I never, that I didn't care for about the community, the way it's arranged now, is you go to retreat, there's teachers, you leave, then you go to another retreat, it's new teachers, you leave, you go to another retreat. You never develop a relationship with a teacher who actually knows your practice and can really mentor you. So this is something that we offer, and occasionally we offer a mentoring group. So if you're on our email list, you would know if we offer another mentoring group. And then um, future events and retreats. 
Um, we have a day long here at Spirit Rock on October 19th, which is actually a Friday because it's being offered to, we're going to offer some CEUs and some businesses are now allowing people to come and do retreats like this as a kind of a work benefit day. So if, you know, you might consider that as well. And that's the focused attention day long that really goes into a lot more of the brain research and um, really functioning from more of a concentrated awareness and, and how to develop that. We call it phaser, focused attention stress reduction. And then um, we're having, oh, I'm going to be speaking, that's right, at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. Have any of you heard of that? Anyway, SAN, Science and Non-Duality, it's in San Jose from October 25th through 28th. There's lots of teachers there, and um, I'll be giving a short talk at that. Then we're doing a five-day retreat at Cloud Mountain, which is just north of Portland, Oregon. It's a smaller retreat center that I think the maximum is like 40 people. So it's a really nice, intimate setting. It's out in nature um, and really is very conducive for this practice we've been teaching there for years. So that's a five-day where we'll really be focusing more on the concentration practice. It's It's kind of a good... Um, introductory retreat. So for people who maybe haven't done retreats, it's a, it's the shortest retreat we teach is five days other than the day-longs. And then we're going to be doing some teaching in Portland while we're there. We'll be doing a Dharma talk and a day-long the following Saturday following that retreat. And then we're teaching in Seattle a day-long on June 8th. And then um, I'm going to be teaching in Norway Um, So if you know anybody in Norway who might like to attend or Scandinavia or Europe, teaching a weekend, and then I'll be teaching a week-long near London. So we're kind of expanding our European teaching. And then um, tentatively, our next long retreat at a center is our two-week which will be a cloud mountain in 2020. And, and we really, there aren't very many teachers teaching long retreats anymore, which is kind of unfortunate. And we are really committed to trying to keep doing that because there's just no better way to deepen than to do a long retreat. You need to do a short retreat before doing a long retreat. So if that's something you're interested in, make sure you've done at least a five-day because you can't just go straight to a two-week retreat if you've never done one. It's better to build up. But that retreat um, will probably be um, July and August of 2020, and that will be an open practice period. So we're really going to be, the theme of the retreat is awakening, and then people can come and do this practice. They could do Vipassana, they could do Dzogchen, they could do teachings from the Diamond Approach, which we also work in. Um, so it's really uh, whatever practice is calling you, the Brahma Viharas, and then we'll be able to guide you individually on those practices. That's in Portland, did you say? That's the Cloud Mountain also. And then, um, oh, April of, again, the, the schedule is still being worked out, but April I will be doing a um, five- to seven-day retreat and I'm still working on what the topic of that is. It's probably going to have something to do with awakening. And then 
we're also starting to think about doing online events where you can do them from the comfort of your own living room or with a friend or whatever, doing day-longs like this, doing a sitting group, um, maybe even doing retreats where you would set up, you would either go somewhere and do it virtually or you could just be at home and do a retreat three-day, five-day, seven-day. That's probably the longest we would do. How many of you would be interested in something like that? Yeah, we're trying to get a sense. We have students all over the world, so for a lot of them, this is the only way they can really come to a retreat without a huge expense. Let's see, is there anything else? So I'll read um, this last quote then, and then we'll do our dedication of merit. I really love this quote uh, from the Dalai Lama. Compassion and love are not mere luxuries. As the source of both inner and external peace, they are fundamental to the continued survival of our species. So may your practice contribute to the overall um, raising of the consciousness of humanity. And we really believe that when you meditate, and you work on your own consciousness and you turn away from unskillful thought patterns that you are actually contributing to raising the vibration of humanity as a whole. Whether you can see that directly or not, um, we really feel that that is actually, not metaphorically, but actually happening. So um, with your meditation practice, you potentially helping the rest of humanity as well as your your own consciousness. So it's traditional at the end of um, practice periods like this to dedicate the merit of the day. And it's thought in Buddhism that when we practice like this and um, work on our own unfoldment, that um, merit accrues for ourselves, basically. So this is good merit. That means that it, it helps your karma. And at the end of those activities, we have the possibility of donating that merit to the benefit of all of humanity or to an individual person that you happen to know who is suffering or to even a group of people or to the earth itself or to animals or to any, any, any place where you would want to, um, to make that contribution. So it's up to you whether you want to dedicate your merit, but if you do want to dedicate it, I'll sort of guide you through that. So go ahead and close your eyes and really feel your own heart and your own goodness for having come here today instead of all of the other things that you could have done to inquire and to be with yourself in the present moment as best you could to understand this mystery that you are and to feel the merit of that. And if you choose to dedicate that merit and feel it going out from your heart to all the other people at Spirit Rock who made this happen, who are dedicating their lives to helping others awaken, all the animals on the property going out from Woodacre to all of Northern California, 
across the states, Oregon, Southern California, Nevada, spreading out really through the whole United States, through the oceans and all of the sea creatures, going to other continents, to Russia and Europe and all of the other continents in that direction, Australia, South America, Africa, every continent coming around and the merit reaching around and touching itself. May the fruits of this practice be dedicated to the happiness, the welfare, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Lovely to be here with you. Yeah, this will be on Dharma Seed. Um, we've been told it needs a little editing because they just recorded the whole day, including all the breaks. So um, it will be it will be posted as it is, and then I'll have it edited too. Yeah.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.